You're listening to the audio-only version of the Moe Gamer podcast. Don't forget you can watch a video version of this episode over on YouTube. Check moegamer.net for a link to the channel. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Moe Gamer podcast. I'm Pete Davison from moegamer.net and as usual I'm joined by my good friend Chris Kasky from, uh, what's your new website again? Oh, uh, ckaskyart.com. There we are, ccaskyart.com. Uh, so lots of new things there, and it's uh, it's a fully integrated experience now with your shop and everything on there now, isn't it? So yeah, no need to sort of hop around to Etsy and stuff like that. So yeah, go check that out and see some of uh, Chris's cool stuff. Yeah. How, how have you been? Oh, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, doing pretty mm-hmm. good. I just finished, uh, you know, uh, I'm th- pretty sure I mentioned on the last episode that I've kind of started kind of a new art category. I'm getting into mm-hmm. wood burning now or pyrography, as it's called oh, by cool. up- uptight people who do it, which is... Pyrography is a much more awesome name, to be fair. Yeah, it it's, you sound it's like very, a wizard. Yeah, it's very, it's very <laughs> cool. It's, it's like when you play Dark Souls and you'd be a pyromancer. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it's basically like I, 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 it's a special tool with a heated metal tip, and I'm and you use it to literally burn images onto wood. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really cool. Uh, I, I just recently finished a piece that I'll be posting on my Deviant Art Gallery very soon of a like a like a Samus design mm-hmm. that I'm really excited about. Um, so it's it's going really well, um, and I'm excited to start sharing and, and selling some of those pieces. I think it'll resonate well with people because it's kind of unique. Um, it's an art form that's been around for a long time, but um, most people I see who do it online are just like grandpas, yeah. And they, they do they do like farm landscapes and and like <laughs> and like pictures of deer. But I'm doing like <laughs> Samus's helmet, and I did like a mag- <laughs> and I did like a magnet of a printy. So I'm doing like cool gamer and geeky stuff. Um, so I'm not gonna give up the pixel art entirely, but this is just kind of something new. Um, yeah, and that I can do quicker and sell for less money, so it'll give more people an opportunity to maybe own a piece of my art because I'm going to be selling these magnets I do for like five bucks a mm-hmm. pop. It's really, oh, that's cool, really cool. Gives you a bit of variety as well, doesn't it? Because yeah. I imagine sort of long and painstaking projects, you sometimes want a, a bit of a break and do something uh, a little bit uh, a little bit more straightforward. That's exactly right. Cool. All right. Okay. So in today's episode, uh, we are going to slightly belatedly celebrate the PS2's twentieth anniversary, uh, which has made us both feel terribly old. Um, that was uh, sort of a, a few weeks back from the recording of this podcast, wasn't it? I think the the actual official anniversary of its launch in North America. Um, so yeah, our main um, topic for today will be just sort of celebrating the PS2, which is one of our favorite systems both of us one of our favorite systems um before that we're going to follow our usual format we're going to spend a bit of time talking about the news first then a bit of time talking about what we've been playing recently uh, and then on to the big discussion so kicking off with the news then um i I have not been paying any attention whatsoever to news recently and you've had a troll through and said it's a fairly fairly moribund collection of news this week isn't it really had to scrape (laughs) <laughs> really really and it's crazy because it's been like five weeks since the last episode four or yeah. five weeks since the last episode and it's been nothing it took me like yeah. three hours to scroll through like four weeks worth of news and i found like this is definitely like the lightest news load we've ever had yeah and most of it's not even news it's just like here's a release date <laughs> yes so on that note um 
first thing is that Saviors of Sapphire Wings and Stranger of Sword City Revisited, uh, which is a double pack of experienced dungeon crawlers, uh, is getting a, uh, is this a... This is a Western release in March of 2021. Um, so if you're unfamiliar, uh, Stranger of Sword City previously appeared on Vita, and I think it got a PC release as well. Uh, Saviors of Sapphire Wings is a remake of a much earlier game, um can't remember the japanese name of it but it was back on psp or something i think this is a remake of that um but it comes bundled with stranger of sword city as well so there's two very substantial uh dungeon crawling rpgs in one bundle there and they're related and like they place like the same universe or whatever yes yeah um so they're coming to switch and pc uh north america is getting it on march the 16th of 2021 europe is getting it on march the 19th of 2021 and australia is getting it on march the 23rd um yeah okay so there's a new announcement trailer of that uh with a bit of uh, gameplay footage in there um it'll be pretty much what you expect from experienced dungeon crawlers so lots of mazes puzzles and beautiful artwork so yeah watch out for that one uh what is next um so legend of heroes trails of cold steel one and two has been announced for nintendo switch ports so if you haven't already bought it twice like i have um <laughs> well indeed even if you have bought it twice already like i have you can now buy it for a third time if you want to um <laughs> so this uh, trails of cold steel 3 is already out on switch and uh, trails of cold steel 4 is if not imminent then certainly very soon um yeah, this, this will mean that you'll be able to play the whole Trails of Cold Steel collection on Switch, uh, which will be nice. Yeah, I always um, thought it was strange that they even released three on the Switch, because I was like, who's this for? Like, yeah. people, <laughs> if you can't have one and two, like, who's this for? But yeah, but now that the, I, I, the whole collection will be available, it's great. Yeah, I, I presume it was sort of like a, a sort of middle of the series Falcom just went, oh, this Switch thing is kind of cool, maybe we should do something with it. Yeah. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, so you'll be able to play all of Cold Steel on Switch, which is nice. And it's uh, probably about time that we said our obligatory thing, which is uh, please release a trilogy of Trails in the Sky on Switch on a single cartridge and we will buy it immediately. Yes. <laughs> and it, it's and it's looking pretty good for a Western release of the, the remasters of the uh, the Crossbell arc. Yes, like, yes. It, it's in the news constantly now. Yeah. Yeah, so fingers crossed we'll finally be able to uh, enjoy the whole thing and sort of the smug people who played it in Japanese can finally shut up. Yeah. <laughs> don't be silly. They'll not shut up. No. They no. don't know how. Um, <laughs> I just can't wait to retire so I can finally play the Trails games. Yeah, it'd be good, wouldn't it? <laughs> like, when, my, when my copy of 4 showed up last week, I was like, ah, my investments are finally coming in. <laughs> like i i view falcom games almost exclusively as like retirement my retirement yeah. like i haven't p properly played an east game in years because they're just getting bigger and bigger like uh yeah. eight was it no eight's the one that's coming out right no seven which is the one that just came like just came out not the one we're waiting for in march i'm so lost which one? are you talking ease yeah yeah, uh, eight is already out. Nine is the one okay. that is already out yeah. in Japan and is coming soon. Eight was quite. Eight was quite big. Like yeah, it had well, loads I mean, they've, of like, they've side been, content. They've been quite big since seven. Yeah, um, yeah, seven was because because there was seven and Trails of Calcutta were both about sort of forty fifty hours each, and they've they've been about that big since. 
which is certainly a far cry from the original ones, which are like a couple of hours. <laughs> I was going to say, like, one of, the, uh, one of the reasons I was such a huge, I mean, I am a huge Ease fan, but like one of the things that endeared Ease to me over other RPGs back in the day was like they were beatable on a weekend. Yeah, yeah. Like, I could sit down on a Saturday morning and be like, I'd like to play through Ease 6 and, like, be done with it Sunday evening. It was like, yeah. it was a good time. Now they're, like, big. Everything's bigger, 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 bigger. <laughs> they're not quite, they're not quite trails big, thankfully, but, uh, yeah. yeah, they are bigger than they used to be. All right, uh, moving along, uh, there is a new Story of Seasons on the way uh, called Pioneers of Olive Town. So Story of Seasons is what used to be called Harvest Moon because Harvest Moon belongs to someone else now, and it's all terribly complicated. But this is basically <laughs> a new Harvest Moon game, um, and that's coming uh, again in March 2021. March is shaping up to be quite busy at this rate. Um, so yeah, I mean, it looks uh, fairly standard, as you might expect for Harvest Moon. Uh, you can tend to animals, farm, chop down trees and uh, socialize with people so it's the same as all the other harvest moon games um socialize with people mm, it's the game well, we it's the game we need <laughs> exactly a forgotten art um yeah and apparently there are over 200 unique events to participate in in that so uh presumably sort of romancing your favorite girls around the uh around the town and whatever i've not played a harvest moon game for a very long time actually i think the last one i played was on gamecube Oh, okay. Yeah, the GameCube one is like legendarily well regarded, though. Mm. Um, I think they just redid a redid the GameCube one. Oh, yeah, I'll have to have to look uh, into that. Mineral, I, I, mineral yeah, town, I remember enjoying that a lot town. back in the day. Certainly. Was, I think, the GameCube. Yeah, I I love Harvest Moon. I mean, I, I don't I don't have nearly the time to invest in it that I used to when I was younger. But just like mm -hmm. I have such fond memories of the N sixty four one specifically. Yeah, um, and the cute little librarian Maria. <laughs> um yeah great great series i just always like to make it known when a new story of seasons is coming out because i feel like the shift in the, the harvest moon story of seasons break up like people forget story of seasons exists but that's yeah that's like real proper harvest moon harvest yeah. moon as it exists now is a weird western developed bastardization of mm -hmm. This is the, the the story of seasons games were worked on by the actual people who created and, and pioneered Harvest Moon for yeah. the first twenty years of its life. So, mm -hmm. all right, uh, moving along. Um, the the Harvest Moon uh, thing was announced as part of a sort of surprise Nintendo Direct that they sprung on us, and another thing that showed up um, as part of that was remasters of No More Heroes and No More Heroes Two: Desperate Struggle on Switch, which people have been begging for for quite a long time. Uh, so those are now available. They're available pretty much immediately after the Direct. They're download only at the moment, uh, which is a bit of a shame. But um, yeah, they, they are now available uh, ahead of No More Heroes 3 coming out next year. And uh, they seem to have been pretty well received so far, judging from what I've seen on social media. People seem to have been enjoying them a lot. So uh, yeah, if you've never played these, uh, now's the time, I guess. Yeah, I mean... You know what I'm about to say, but <laughs> someone needs to release a double pack on a cartridge yep. for me. Yep. Um, I'll, I'll pay a lot of money for it. These games hold up. They're great, and I want to, mm -hmm. and I want to play them again. I mean, not that I couldn't play them on my Wii U, I guess, but... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've got them both on Wii as well, I think. But, uh, yeah, if there was a Switch double pack, I would uh, I would probably bite on that. Um Talking of Suda on, on Switch, actually, I, I, I saw earlier on, actually, this is not one you had in your list, but also... Um, they're doing a Switch double pack of um, the two, the Silver Case games as well. Oh, are you kidding? Yeah. Um, so I, I just saw that this morning and I've 
promptly lost uh, the story. Let me see if I can find it. Silver case switch. Um, yeah, they're doing a, a double pack. It's called the Silver 2425, uh, which is like a, a combination of the two games' titles. Um, and it includes both the Silver Case and uh, the 25th Ward, the Silver Case, which were previously available separately for PS4. Um, and yeah, they'll be coming to uh, Switch. That's lovely. In, uh, is there a date on it? No, it's just it's just an Amazon listing at the moment, so there's no date or sort of official announcement oh, as yet. But, an Amazon uh, listing? That means physical? Yeah. Yeah, it looks like it. Oh, shit. I'm so on board with this. I love Suda stuff. And I passed mm-hmm. on these on the PS4 just because... I don't know. Can't buy every game. <laughs> these these are one of these ones that were they were uh, uh, Nisa Europe always has them on sale. So I I picked them up a while back for like a five each or something like that. So I have them on PS4. But as you know, everything is better on Switch. So it's true. <laughs> indeed, I will probably double dip if this comes west, uh, which uh, hopefully it will. Cool. Right, uh, moving on. Another release date. Bravely Default 2 is coming on February the 26th of 2021. Um, so um, this has sort of incorporated a lot of um, a lot of feedback from the demo they released a while back. They've, they've made a, a real point of actually putting out a trailer saying, uh, yes, look, these are the things that people said about the demo. These are the things we've done to fix some of the things that people have asked about. Uh, so they've been very much taking feedback on board with the development of that, and we'll be able to finally play the finished product on February the 26th of next year. Huzzah. Mm-hmm. Slavery Default is like a religious experience for me. I don't even really know, <laughs> how, to de- I don't even really know how to describe like how deep my allegiance to the first one runs. It's like one of my favorite games of all time. Yeah. 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 I was hoping the, the second one lives up to that. Well, the third one, technically, isn't it? <laughs> because Japanese numbering conventions yeah. in RPGs. Bravely Default, Bravely Default 2, 2 the, the third, third game. one. Yeah. yeah. All right, uh, continuing on, um, Nisa is going to be handling R-Type Final 2 in the West. You can already pre-order it, I think. Um, so they've got a, a limited edition called the Inaugural Flight Edition, which comes with R-Type Final 2, uh, the official soundtrack, an art book, and a collector's box. Uh, so this is sort of the same treatment that um, Nisa have done for quite a few games recently, which is a, sort of a not a particularly sort of huge and complex uh, limited edition, but still a limited edition regardless. And if you want a physical version, that's probably going to be the way you'll need to go to get that. Um, so this is coming for uh, Switch, PS4, Xbox One, Xbox Series X and PC. Uh, no PlayStation 5 from the sound of things. Um, but yeah, so you can you can pre-order that uh, that inaugural flight edition now. Uh, continuing on the shoot 'em up theme, Cotton Reboot is coming to North America and Europe in 2021, which is very exciting um, because this this came out in Japan a little while back, didn't they? And um, yeah, so. people were sort of wondering if it would ever come west. Because have we seen many of the Cotton games over here? I, it's not a series I know, but uh, to my knowledge. I don't know about your region, but I think the U.S. got one of the Sega CD ones, mm-hmm. and I think that might be it. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. It's not known in the West at all. Mm-hmm. It's it's one of those sort of cult things, like where sort of shoes them up fans are always like, "Oh, have you played Cotton? It's brilliant." And then everyone goes, "No, never heard of it." <laughs> yeah, it's widely it is- considered to be one of like the like the gold standards of the cute 'em up subgenre. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, the nice thing about this is there's going to be digital and physical versions, and it sounds as if there's going to be standard and limited edition releases as well. 
uh, and these are coming in early 2021 um the cotton reboot is an update of cotton fantastic dreams uh it's got an updated um mode with widescreen uh widescreen display and new art um and it's also got an x68000 mode uh that sort of um recreate the experience of playing the original version as well so yeah very exciting uh this will be a good one to uh jump on board with the series if you're not familiar with it and as you say uh very well regarded installment in the cute em up subgenre so yeah i'll be on that i go uh, on ebay to see what copies of <laughs> i couldn't find one but but ebay also suggested to me a game i'd totally forgotten about for the second cd which is a game called revengers of vengeance <laughs> which is might be the finest title in video game history <laughs> excellent uh Right, uh, continuing on, Monster Sanctuary is leaving early access and coming to consoles in December of 2020. Um, don't know this one, uh, but this is presumably one you've been following. Is this a, this is a monster-catching game again? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a monster-collecting RPG, but what's interesting and unique about it is that it takes place... Uh, it's more of like a side-scroller with... Uh, oh, yes, I do remember you telling me about this. The, yes, this the, looks you know, cool, progressive, actually. Open, you know, open structure elements to it. Um, so it's just kind of interesting because it's doing something I've often wanted to see, which is blending RPG-style combat with an active exploration. Um, combat doesn't take place in a in a battle sequence separate screen. It's just like it happens right on the, um, you know, like right on the field as you're as you're exploring in side scroller mode. Yeah. And there's lots yeah. of cute little monsters, and you can raise them. And with it being a side scroller, it looks as as well as collecting the monsters for sort of combat skills, there's also sort of traversal skills that they'll be able to help you with as well, which is an interesting twist. Yeah, and they're cute, and they follow you around when you run around. And Team 17 is handling publication, and they've been pretty solid with physical press releases, so I think it's, yep. probably, it's very likely that this will be collectible. Yeah, yeah. So that is coming on December the 8th of 2020. Uh, it's coming to Switch, PS4, and Xbox One. PC version is already available, just leaving its early access phase as well. So you can grab it on PC now um, on Steam. Uh, and then the console versions will be out on December the 8th, 2020. So keep an eye out for that. I also have an affinity for games where the lead character has a cool hat. So, <laughs> so yeah. in Monster Sanctuary, there is indeed a cool hat involved, so... That's, yep, that's a bonus. Indeed. Good stuff. All right. Uh, next up, Analog announced a new system. Uh, I'm not friends with Analog after the pocket fiasco, but nobody, uh, nobody yeah. is. But I dare yeah. to dream. <laughs> I dare to dream <laughs> yeah. of a world where I can play my copy of um, Rondo of Blood via HDMI. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, assuming you'd be able to get one, which is a big ask at this point, uh, the Analog Duo is an all-in-one NEC system that's coming in 2021. Uh, it'll be $200. Uh, it will be able to use CD-ROMs, Hue cards, Super CD-ROMs, and Turbo chips to play PC Engine, Super Graphics, and TurboGrafx-16 games. Um, so it has wired and wireless controllers, Bluetooth support for up to four players, uh, supports HDMI, 480p, 720p, and 1080p, with a headphone jack, um, and uh, two color schemes to match the Japanese PC Engine and the TurboGrafx-16. Um, 
sorry, they're also doing a uh, adapter for the Pocket to play Turbo Express games as well. Um, so you'll be able to play PC Engine games as if it was like a, a Turbo Express handheld as well. Um, but like we say, anyone who tried to jump on the Pocket thing and discovered that they sold out in literally less than five minutes, um, mostly to scalpers. I had it um, in my cart, man. I had it in yeah. my cart. <laughs> and then when I clicked confirm... The, the the little icon just spun and spun and spun, <laughs> and then it was like, nah, sorry, dude. <laughs> yes, that was a pretty widespread experience from the sound of things. Um, yeah, I, I was just watching. I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll check and see if I get one of those. And I went, no. And this was like five minutes after it was announced, and it was like, okay. Analog then is I- is like that posh restaurant that like everyone in town talks about. And, like, the waiters are rude, like, the service is terrible, um, and it takes you months to get a reservation if you're lucky. Sometimes they cancel your reservation on you, but as soon as you get the food, you're like, oh, fuck, this is why. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I just, I hate how much I feel the desire to support them, even though they're, like, stocking and customer service practices are so poor, because the, the their output is so incredible like i have the yeah. super nintendo and the and the mega drive and it and they're literally like the night two of like the nicest game game pieces of hardware i've ever owned mm-hmm. they work yeah. they work flawlessly the presentation is beautiful from a design perspective everything done to the packaging is like so thoughtfully done like these are premium products for adults who care about video games so it's just mm-hmm. It's a constant battle with my desire to be angry at them and my absolute <laughs> slavish dedication to owning everything they make. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, if you are able to get hold of those, then uh, it'll be launching sometime next year for $200. So good luck if you're after that. It also needs to be said that they do they do multiple runs of the majority of their consoles. Often, yes. Often with improvements. So honestly, it's not the worst thing in the world if you didn't get the first run of Pockets. Because they'll do another run. It'll probably have improvements implemented. Like, yeah, yeah. What I need them to do is do a Neo Geo. I know they did one originally. That was actually the first thing they ever did. But um, I need them to do another one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, fingers crossed. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Um, Level 5 North America's branch is supposedly running with a skeleton crew of staff members at the minute, and it looks suspiciously like they're going to be closing down at some point. Um, There's been a a few sort of reports of uh, Level 5 struggling a bit over the course of the last month or so. Um, They seem to be wanting to be focused on um, the Yokai Watch series rather than anything else. Uh, but they've got a, a mobile Nino Kuni title on the way as well. But they've only been confirmed for a Japanese release. So, um, yeah, don't really know what's going on with Level 5 in the West at the moment. But uh, it's not looking great for them at the moment. But, I mean, there's nothing stopping them sort of coming through other people. But it looks as if they're going to be scaling down or closing their their own Western operations altogether at some point. Yeah, I mean, it's entirely possible that... Their, you know their translation work and stuff will just come through other houses like you I yeah can, i can yeah. envision a future where like nis is pub but nis or like marvelous are getting involved to localize level five games like it's yeah. not it's not the end of the world but it is tragic because as we will discuss probably as part of our ps2 discussion they are one of those legacy rpg developers whose output i've always respected so it's not fun to see any negativity surrounding their 
uh, no. their, the health of their business. No, exactly. Um, and uh, continuing on with news of uh, sort of struggling a bit, Sega Sammy has been um, struggling a bit recently as well. They've recorded a three billion yen deficit um, in the what is it quarter two of of the twenty twenty fiscal year, which is uh, a lot of money. Yeah. Um, there there have also been reports circulating that um, they've been selling off their arcade division or looking to sell off the arcade division, and there's there's lots of conflicting reports at the time of recording, so I uh, I, I can't say with a hundred percent certainty what exactly they're doing, but they're doing something with the arcade business. There's also um, that report that came out yesterday that the classic Japanese they like politely requested six hundred and twenty five people resign. Yeah, yeah. Yes, so bit of a shame, but um, yeah, obviously there's a lot of speculation surrounding that at the moment. Like, is someone going to buy Sega? Is someone going to buy Atlas separately from Sega? We don't know at the moment. Um, but uh, they've been doing sort of reasonably well on the consumer side of things, but they've been losing a lot of money um, as part of the uh, the pandemic and the arcade business and so on. So, yeah, struggling a bit. Uh, understandable in these. Uh, troubled times mm-hmm. to put it euphemistically but um we've uh, yeah we've mused quite a bit about like the gradual and inevitable death of arcades and the mm-hmm. uh, just a indication of my fucked up priorities in life but like as soon as like the coronavirus started happening like stuff started shutting down and like social distancing and like i was like this is this is the final nail in the coffin for arcades yeah. like arcades as a arcades as an entity will not be able to survive months of this it's it, they were mm-hmm. all they were all hanging on by a, a you know a razor's edge at this point and uh i think i think this is all the end of, of arcades yeah uh, i mean except like 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 in the little independent you know like the guy i know in the town next to me who has a small arcade he'll be fine yeah. but like large yeah. like corporate entities um who you know yeah. are, are driven by multi-million dollar profits uh, they won't they won't get the justification they need monetarily to keep those entities running mm-hmm. yeah end of an era for sure but uh, at least there are sort of various ways to kind of preserve the ex- arcade experience and take it home with you these days is what I, do. I was i was telling you a bit the other day about this um this at games thing i saw recently that's the the legends system that they do yeah those has, are really neat yeah um so if, you, if you're not seeing this this is um a series of various things that at games do uh it comes with uh, a little console that you plug into your telly or you can get a complete arcade cabinet that's got it built into it and there's uh depending on the model you get there's a 100 150 or 300 games built into it that you can just play straight away and then they've also got this service called um I forgot what it's called it's like arcade net or something like that where it sounds as if, um, to begin with, you'll be able to stream arcade games, which is not something I particularly want to do, but um, they do have plans for you to be able to download and keep games in the future as well. So uh, that's going to be an interesting thing to do. The thing that particularly attracted me about this system was that the um, the library they've got included just on the system itself it includes a lot of stuff that doesn't see a lot of re-releases so it's got a lot of taito stuff on there which you haven't seen re-released since the um the taito legends collection on ps2 oh cool um it's got um it's got rodland on there mm-hmm. you know how much i love rodland does it have don um, doko don <laughs> yeah yeah all right yeah 
so yeah it's it, it's it's got all that sort of stuff on there and it's actually got a few console games on there as well which is quite interesting it's got things like top racer on there as well which you, you'd be able to play on an arcade cabinet which will be interesting um but the, the the cool thing about the controller side of things is they they do a pro model which has a trackball in the middle as well so it's got it's got two arcade sticks side by side and it's got a trackball in the middle as well so with mm-hmm. with uh with games that are on there that support trackball controls you'll be able to actually have an authentic experience rather than a, a sort of rough approximation using a joystick or analog controls marvel madness so that's really cool um, experienced yeah yeah so that's really cool um they they seem um they seem quite hard to get hold of in europe at the moment so there's not many distributors in europe carrying them at the moment uh but that might change over time you can get them fairly easily in america from the look of things you can get them from like gamestop and sam's club and um direct format games in the states oh cool uh but europe it's uh, a little bit trickier and quite expensive at the moment but that might change in the future but yeah sort of the arcade style experiences that that's the way that's going to go i think because like if arcades aren't going to be a thing anymore at least those games and those experiences are being preserved in some form which sure. is nice and honestly, like, modern arcades are weird, especially, like, in Japan. There's a lot of, like, gotcha-influenced stuff going on in modern yeah. arcade gaming, where, like, yeah. games, you, like, have those cards, and, like, it, it's not it's not what it used to be. No, exactly. I mean, a, a little while back, um, they, they sort of um, did up our local shopping center with, like, uh, like, a new cinema, and there was an arcade as part of that. So one day I thought I'd go and have a look at it, and it was it was all, like, ticket machines, like yeah, they, yeah. they had there was like a doodle jump machine that spewed out tickets so there was a giant space invaders machine that was kind of cool but that was still a ticket machine that yeah. you were playing to I've, get tickets to exchange for prices. that's a really neat machine though that, that's the one where you like sit down and you like have the gun yeah it's more like, like a gi- gigantic screen ahead of you yeah. with space invaders on it so, so i mean it was cool but it's not yeah not what i associate with the arcade experience no, but it's I more mean, like it's games in the arcade now are more like experiential i would say there's always like a yeah. physical or like gimmicky element to them at least mm-hmm. in the west but in japan it's like weird and like there's a gotcha stuff going on in the arcades now yeah, like a, yeah. A, a lot of a lot of like gear drop stuff like linked to like cards you have to buy i mean that's mm-hmm. been around for a while i remember it with initial d back in the day yeah i was, I was gonna say sort of sort of having, having your card for things has been a, a, around since sort of probably the naomi era i think yeah but it's, i remember like a, there were a bunch of like sega games that you could like record your progress on cards and stuff but it's a bit different now it's a bit more like gotcha you now like games have like mm-hmm. drops and like there are games based on gotcha franchises in our yeah. games yeah like it's a very different realm doesn't surprise me all right uh last story we've got uh for today then is bubble bubble for friends the baron is back uh which is the sort of expanded version of bubble bubble 4 uh that is launching on november the 17th in the west um and then japan a couple of days later um if you've already got the switch version um which was the the bubble bubble 4 base game that will get a free update that adds the new content from the baron is back so you don't need to buy it again um they are doing a physical version of this updated version for both uh, PlayStation 4 and Switch. So if you haven't got it already, uh, you may as well get this new version because it will have all the stuff, hopefully, on the disc or on the cart, which is nice. Um, yeah, I, I played Bubble Bubble 4 a while back. It's, I mean, it's Bubble Bubble that, that looks a bit nicer. It's got the original game in there as well. It's fucking hard. Yeah, Bubble Bubble's, <laughs> Bubble Bubble's merciless. Do not let its adorable <laughs> exterior fool you. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's good fun, though. I, I played it a while back. I, I need to... Well, 
I mean, we are we are locked down at the minute, but I imagine it'll be quite good fun to play in the four-player co-op mode. I can see that being enjoyably chaotic, but yeah. uh, that's not going to be a thing for quite a while. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. All right, anything else you want to talk about before we move on? No, I think that's it. Like I said, super anemic news month. Well, we made the best of what we had, so... All right, so we'll take a short break now, and then we'll come back and we'll talk a bit about what we've been playing recently. So we'll see you in a moment. Baron Von Blubber is invincible. To clear the stage, you'll need to avoid him while battling the other bullies. Clear these 100 new stages consecutively, just like in the original Bubble Bobble arcade game, and go for the high score! Welcome back. For our second segment, we're going to talk a bit about what we've been playing recently. Say, do you want to kick us off, Chris? Yeah, because uh, I can't stop playing Cadence of Hyrule. <laughs> Already. <laughs> like, cannot stop playing it. Um, it's been a long time since I've played a game that, like, gets me in the zone in the way that mm -hmm. Cadence of Hyrule is. Like, it is what I dub a lost time game. Yeah. Because the, um, the way it demands your attention to, like you know to pay attention to the rhythm you have to like get into it and you have to get so into it that you're not really paying attention to anything else in the world around you yep so it's like it's been one of the first games i played in a long time where it's just like uh-oh that was two hours <laughs> and uh i needed that this week yep. <laughs> so, so it's been a very nice time uh, so Cadence of Hyrule is from uh, Brace Yourself Games, who developed Crypt of the Necrodancer. And uh, Cadence of Hyrule takes Crypt of the Necrodancer, applies its mechanics, and mashes them up with traditional Zelda mechanics as well. So uh, Crypt of the Necrodancer was a roguelite experience with randomly generated dungeons, and the caveat being that instead of it being turn-based, as most mystery dungeon-style roguelites are, it... Um, meshed things up with a rhythm element so music is important and your character must move to the beat of the music in order to be successful because if you miss a beat your enemies you stumble and then your enemies can move closer to you or or act more than you can so you must keep your movements synced with the rhythm of the game in order to be successful so um Crypt of the Necrodancer was extremely popular. It got a lot of praise not only for the game itself, but the quality of its music. So mm -hmm. these these guys also, I guess Nintendo got with them and was like, hey, let's do something together. Uh, and then they made an amazing Zelda-skinned version of Crypt of the Necrodancer that essentially expands the experience to not only have the randomly generated dungeon aspect of Necrodancer, but also have an actual Zelda overworld. And, the, and, and traditional Zelda elements, exploring that overworld, finding the different dungeons, collecting items that affect your abilities in combat or your abilities to manipulate the environment to solve puzzles, but all with the skin of having to act with the rhythm on top and absolutely banging Legend of Zelda music remixes. Yep. Just five star all around. And uh, visually, it's also just, like, stunning. Um, it's a, a pixel art game, um, so it's a bit reminiscent of, like, the Super Nintendo Zelda. Mm -hmm. But it's um, 
plus. It's like what we always talk about, like pixel art plus. Like the the resolution is much higher than old 16-bit games, so it's much more detailed. The colors or the color range is massive and over, super oversaturated. Uh, the two yeah. artists who worked on it, Paul Veer and uh, Midio, the other person goes by, uh, they both worked on Sonic Mania. Yeah. Um, so they're very kind of well known in the the pixel art world, and like it's just every little character is like brimming with personality, and because of like the rhythm nature of the game, like they all bop to the music, like including the enemies. So yeah. it's it's just like the the animation is like spot on. There's just a load of personality, um, and I think it was a really bold choice that they made that they didn't totally like. It just doesn't look exactly like a Zelda game. Um, the original Crypt of the Necrodancer had like a very, um, a very unique visual style with like a, a certain like roundness and use of like exaggerated line thickness. It had a really, like you when you saw Crypt of the Necrodancer, you knew it. Like it had a, yeah, a, a very yeah. unique style. And so what they did was they they really hybridized that the unique style of the Necrodancer game with like the traditional Zelda stuff. So it's got a visual <laughs> profile that has a ton of. Um, a ton of personality that's totally radically different from like previous Zelda stuff because all the characters and enemies are kind of redrawn in this style. So mm -hmm. it's very distinct as opposed to being something that just looks like another Zelda game. It's like familiar, it's familiar, but unique at the same time. And I love when something like that happens. Cool. Yeah. I've not picked this up yet, but um, yeah, there is a physical version out now, isn't there? Yes, I correct. Believe. And the physical version has all the DLC. There's like what, two DLC packs and they're both yeah. packed on the cartridge. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm going to need to grab that. I think because I've been wanting to play that for a while, but I, I had been holding out for a physical release. And now there is one, so same, I should put my, put my money where my mouth is, I guess. In a similar <laughs> vein, um, there is a physical version of Crypt of the Necrodancer complete with all DLC coming out in February. Yes. So yes. very excited for that as well because I have not played that either. Yes. Well, I mean, if, if you're getting this much out of Cadence of Hyrule, you'll definitely enjoy that as well. It's got some, some really nice designs, some really cool bosses, some... Uh, sort of interesting challenges and enemy patterns to deal with so yeah i think you'll you'll enjoy that yeah it's it's been a real it's been a real good time for me and i don't generally do well with games with a heavy musical or rhythm element so it's mm -hmm. it's, it's been a surprise that i've caught on so well to this i was really worried about it at first it took yeah. me like one day like my first gameplay session was absolutely abysmal <laughs> but then like well, they the, the the thing with Crypt of the Necrodancer and some other games like it, one of which I'll, I'll talk about in a little while, is that it's it's not quite the same as sort of the very technical rhythm games. Like it's it's not the same as like a a Taiko no Tatsujin or a, or a Project Diva or something like that. In that you're you're not sort of tapping out um, rhythms for the music. You're not you're not being part of the music as such. Most of the time, you're just tapping on the beat, which is a lot more accessible and a lot more understandable for people who maybe don't have as much musical experience or as much experience with rhythm games and so on so games like this are a really good entry point to music based games but if you're like me and you have zero sense of rhythm <laughs> like even even that is exceedingly challenging yeah yeah because it's it's not just the you know the challenge of the game isn't just to monitor and stay on task with the rhythm it's to stay on the beat but while also managing all the things you have to do 
Yes. Be, being aware of the pat movement patterns and attacks styles of every enemy on the screen being aware of the tools at your disposal and puzzling out ways to use them so like for instance i don't know what kind of weapons and abilities there are in necrodancer but in uh cadence of hyrule you once you, you get the bow the bow you have to pull the bow string on one beat and then release the arrow on the next beat yeah so it's like it's like stuff like that is like oh like Doing that while also remembering to stay moving, while remembering to stay moving on the beat, while paying attention to that giant ogre that's throwing a spear from the other side of the room. Like, it's it, it's a lot, <laughs> yeah. and it makes my brain feel scrambly, but, like, in a good way, in a way that I feel mm -hmm. challenged. And, like, it's not, you know, sometimes I, I don't do well with really tough games. I just kind of give up. But, like, yeah. the, the charm of this game is such that, like, I always keep coming back for more. Like, I'm always trying to learn from my mistakes. And the characters, the different characters play radically different too. So like that's a, yeah. that's a huge, um, a huge uh, feather in its cap too. Like as soon as I unlocked Princess Zelda, and like she gets a, a rapier that like can makes her travel across two squares. So it just yeah. totally it totally changes your your strategy to combat and like the way you approach enemies. And it's like it, it's it's constantly refreshing itself. Plus the element of the random generation in the dungeons It's just constantly. It's, it's always feeling new, it's always feeling fresh, um, but not in a way that's punishing, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. not, because it's not a, it's not a roguelike that's interested in, like, making you feel bad about yourself. Like, you learn, yeah. you learn from your mistakes, the things you lose are not huge. You lose all your rupees when you die, but then you, you don't lose, like, your, your weapons that you've collected. So it's not like you lose everything. Oh, okay. Um, so you don't, you don't have to start over when you die. Well, so you start, so you have the overworld right the yeah. overworld has sheikah stones in, in like select tiles of the over like it's very much classic zelda right the the overworld yeah. moves in tiles um as you explore the overworld you find sheikah stones those are your continue points okay so when you have an inventory just like traditional zelda and you have the classic zelda items you've got bombs arrows all that kind of stuff um if you die, so when you clear a tile of enemies, that tile of enemies is cleared, period. Right. The enemies do not come back unless you die. So okay. So if you if you die, all the enemy all the enemy tiles in the overworld you've cleared reset and regenerate the enemies. You lose all your rupees. You lose certain items. So you have you have there's two categories of items. There's permanent items like like tools, right? Like um, uh, your bow, or like you get a loot that allows you to travel between the continue points. So you can fast travel mm -hmm. around the map, like stuff like that, like tools that change the, the function and the game of the gameplay. You don't lose those when you die, but like you have to have a shovel to dig walls. You have to have a torch to see in the dark. Like right. all, all the items that have like a usage or lifespan, you do lose those. Okay. Um, but every time you clear a screen of enemies, you get diamonds. Um, so diamonds, unlike rupees, do not disappear when you die. They're, they're a, a currency that carries over in between runs. So every time you die, you get transported to this like mystical shopkeeper who only takes diamonds. So depending on how well you did in that previous run, you should have a stockpile of diamonds to, to replenish some of that stuff that you lost in the death. So, you, so right. you, you would buy a shovel, you would buy a torch, you would buy a, a ring that has like a unique effect. Um, 
So it's got some of that roguelike element. Um, the other thing that resets when you die is the dungeons. Okay. So um, the dun the dungeons not only regenerate the enemies, uh, the overworld does not reshuffle and change. The overworld is locked. But the dungeons, in traditional roguelike fashion, change every run. So they're not the right. same. Um, so if you're exploring one of the... There's, there's many dungeons all over the map that you can explore to like get treasures and get money and stuff. And then there's four big dungeons with bosses that are the actual like story dungeons. Um, once you're inside one of those, if you die, you've got to start the whole dungeon over um, until you've unlocked the boss key. Once you unlock yeah. the boss room, it locks the dungeon in as complete, and then you can just reattempt the boss as much as you want. But okay. if you die in the dungeon, you got to start over at the beginning of the dungeon, and it reshuffles the layout of the dungeon. But you start okay. you start at the dungeon. Like yeah. You, you, like your whole progress of the game does not ever reset. Like you don't go back to square one. Like your right. pro your okay. progress saves, and just like your 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 tool set. And, and the layouts of the dungeons are what shuffles upon death. Mm -hmm. So it's a real it's... great combination of traditional Zelda progress with roguelite um, sense of loss, a little bit of punishment for your screw-ups, and, and refreshing, uh, you know, things constantly changing, which are the things people like about roguelites without being too punishing and without sending you yeah. back to the beginning. Cool. Sounds like fun. Yeah, and sounds noticeably distinct from the original Crypt of the Necrodancer as well. So Crypt of the Necrodancer also had a certain amount of persistent progression, but you still were effectively starting a new run each time that you died and so on. But you, you had the diamonds in that. But the diamonds in that were used to sort of unlock things that would appear in subsequent runs. Yeah, that's very traditional. So, yeah. So you, so you would like you know, like pay diamonds to uh, sort of ensure that like a certain weapon would show up in your next run or something like that, or a certain spell would start appearing, that kind of thing. So yeah, it's, it sounds interestingly distinct from that. So yeah, I definitely have to pick that up at some point. Yeah, it's lovely. I highly recommend it. I was not expecting it to be as well designed or, 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 or honestly as good as it is. <laughs> um, I, I was expecting it to be more like Necrodancer. I was expecting it to be everything's going to reset every time. And I was like, how does this function with a Zelda experience? But it yeah. turns out it doesn't. It, it, it's a Zelda experience that has the Necrodancer elements. It's very much a Zelda game first. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't really sure where that balance would tip. You know, it's like, yeah. a, I didn't know if it was going to be 60-40, 50-50. It's more of like a 60-40. Like, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's heavy on the Zelda, uh, clear progression in, in a story, but but with the Necrodancer mechanics integrated into that experience. Cool. I'll have to check the finances and try and grab that, grab a copy of that, I think. If I can just stop buying Xbox 360 games and PS2 games. <laughs> they'll, they'll still be there <laughs> yeah, if you give them yeah. a rest for a month. Nobody wants them yeah. but you and me at this point anyway. So. This is true. This is true. Yes, good stuff. All right, anything else you've been up to? Uh, I've also been playing CrossCode by Radical Fish Games. Mm, yeah, um, I know you've been quite taken with this, so let's, yeah, let's hear a bit. Yeah, I'm very enamored with it. So it's an overhead action RPG, which there is my favorite. I know I've mentioned many times in this podcast, it's pretty much my favorite style of game. Um, it's got an interesting setting where it takes place in an MMO, mm -hmm. kind of like Dot .hack, right? Like you're in, you're yeah. playing this MMO to like uncover a mystery. Um, so like it's got the weird element of like things are at stake, but like you're also like you have to learn how to play the MMO. So like you're you're right. running around with like other people 
who like are just players in this MMO. Like your party members and friends that you make are are just people playing this MMO. But, like you're there for a specific reason, trying to like solve this mystery that impacts the real world within the MMO. Um, right. So it's it's got a cool premise, um, and the gameplay kind of hybridizes like a very fast paced action RPG. It feels a lot like Ease, like the way you move really quickly and dodge and do combos. But mm-hmm. there's also twin stick shooter mechanics. So you aim with the right stick, and then you you know with the trigger you shoot these spheres. And so like you you it's also like kind of a shooter. Uh, okay. If you if you cho- let if you don't rapid fire with the spheres and you let them charge in between shots, they also rebound off walls. So there's like a billiards kind of thing going on, and. Uh, and then if you're closer to enemies, you press a different button, you can just do like a, like a physical combo attack, a melee attack. Um, but the combination of like this twin stick shooter mechanic with the overhead dungeon crawling is also like ripe with puzzles just everywhere. Like these like weird like rebound shot puzzles where like a, a switch for a door will be like on the other side of a pillar, but like it's too narrow for you to get through so you have to like bank a sphere in an angle like across that the alleyway so it hits the the pillar that activates the that deactivates the laser wall or like you'll get to a room and it'll be like four pillars and you have to find a way to like hit all the pillars with a sphere in like a certain amount of time but like you know like in 30 seconds the first one you hit will like dim back out so you have to figure out a way to like rebound one off the other it's a um, I love this stuff. Um, you know, it's like the, re- the reason that one of the original Wild Arms is one of my favorite games of all time is because of these cleverly constructed dungeon puzzles. So yeah. this combination of these dungeon puzzles with this unique uh, twin stick shooter mechanics with a gorgeous, highly detailed pixel art, really nice, pleasant characters that are well written with a lot of personality. It's just been a real delight to discover this game. Cool. Yeah, I've seen this one around a bit, but I uh, haven't sort of really known much about it. But uh, yeah, yeah, I remember you saying you were extremely taken with it as soon as you started playing it. So yeah, yeah. I was genuinely surprised. I had been following it for a while on like early access on Steam and stuff, and uh, mm-hmm. when a physical version was announced, uh, I think it's published by what Einen Games. Um, yes. As soon as a physical version was announced, I was like, oh yeah, like I- I'm going to get in on this, but like. I've been doing this a lot lately specifically is like really just getting deep into these like indie modern um, overhead action RPGs like pixel art style um, yeah you know I've, I've, I'm sure I've mentioned games like Moonlighter and Sparklight on this cast before which yes I'm quite yeah. taken with all of those and this is an, just another example of this kind of renaissance of these style of overhead action games just just made with an incredible amount of love and respect for the genre and um, mm-hmm. I'm just I'm impressed by the scale of it. It's just, it's super ambitious. I can't stress that enough. Cool. Yeah, it's it's been really nice to see a, a lot of indie developers really paying homage to a, a much wider variety of different classic game styles and sort of stuff that stuff that we really like for one thing, uh, but uh, just just sort of a variety for another thing. Because remember, remember a time when it was all pixel art platformers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's like, well, like you know, I've mentioned before. Like, I love me uh, an open, open uh, platform, an open structure, two D platformer. Um, but like, I love me some Zelda. I mean, I love me some Metroid. I love me some Castlevania. 
I love me as so many of like the modern clones of that style of game, but it's just like after a while it was like, all right, like I, <laughs> I, I, I get it. You love these games. I love them too. But like they they were so suffuse in the in the industry that I was just starting to get um, fatigue with that genre. Yeah. Um, not yeah. that I don't still love it, but it's it's nice to kind of see that the. I mean, now I'll probably get fatigue with overhead action RPGs because these seem to be the new hotness. But mm-hmm. like right now, it's just cool to have like a different wave of, of stuff to explore. Yeah, for sure, for sure. All right, anything else you want to bring up? Nah, that's the big thing. I mean, I've been playing some other stuff, too. I recently got a copy of Dungreed from Nicalis, mm-hmm. Um, But I, I want to fiddle with that some more before I really talk about it, because there's a lot of layers to that onion. All right, sounds good. All right, I'll talk about a couple of things I've been playing recently, then. Um, one of which ties in slightly with what you've been talking about, which is uh, Mad Rat Dead from Nipponichi. Oh, yes. So, Mad Rat Dead is uh, a similar kind of idea mechanically to what we were talking about with Crypt of the Necrodancer and Cadence of Hyrule just then. In that it's a rhythm-based game, but this time around it's a side-scrolling platformer. Um, and so, um, you can just move left and right with the controller, but you move very slowly when you do that. So, most of your movement will be through uh, using a dash move in time with the music um, and doing a jump and double jump. And there's like a, a lock-on attack and there's a quick drop and that sort of thing. So, there's, there's, there's sort of four four different moves you can do um, using the face buttons on the controller and the directions. Um, and so navigating your way through the levels is a combination of figuring out which move is best to do for the situation ahead of you and sort of being able to do that in time with the music and doing some fairly tricky platforming along the way as well. So there's a lot of sequences where timing is important for not just for staying in time with the music but sort of for dealing with the hazards as well. So there's sort of like sequences where uh, sort of there's a there's a water level rising and falling and that sort of thing. So you've got a time crossing over that with a period where you're not going to drown and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. So the the concept of it is that you play the you play this rat um, that was killed and dissected in a lab, um, and in the afterlife he meets the rat god who is super cute by the way, um, and um, he get he gets a second chance to to relive his final day and do whatever he wants on his final day but at the end of the final at the end of his final day he's still going to die um and so he decides that um on this final day he wants to kill the human who killed him um and so he begins this quest to sort of uh try and find a way out of his cage to um find a means of killing the human but along the way um the whole thing gets seriously fucked up um (laughs) because it's it, it's sort of it's sort of like i haven't finished it yet so i don't know 100 percent what's going on yet but it's sort of seriously implied that he's well i mean the clues in the title the 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 it's seriously implied that he is having um some <laughs> to put it mildly some mental health issues um and that he is hallucinating and that he is uh sort of seeing things that aren't really there he's thinking he's in places that he isn't really um, there's several sequences where he thinks he's still in the lab where he sort of gets a slap from the from the rat god and realizes that he's actually outside and he hasn't been in the lab for a long time and it's just the story is presented in this really sort of chaotic confusing way it's it's a very sort of um unreliable narrator type thing um that's really really interesting narratively um but then there's things like at the start of the game obviously he's he's this sort of bitter and twisted individual who just wants to kill this person who wronged him 
and along the way he sort of um he sort of enjoys a lot of character growth like there's a sequence where he's trying to escape being captured by a cat at one point but then uh at the end of the stage um the cat dies and he feels really bad about that so using the ability he had to rewind time uh, which is how he how he's able to relive his final day um he then saves the cat and cooperates with the cat in the next stage and there's there's lots of sequences like that where he's sort of growing to understand sort of ideas of empathy and understanding and that sort of thing um and yeah so i i can see it going some fairly dark places by the end of the of the whole thing and it already has gone some fairly dark places but uh thoroughly intriguing thoroughly intriguing and the soundtrack is absolutely banging yeah, yeah. Uh, as you would, as you would hope from a rhythm game, it's got this, it's got this lovely sort of electro swing style to it. So there's sort of jazz elements, but then these thumping beats that to go along with it, and it's just perfect to sort of tap buttons in time with. There's a really nice, like like you say with um, with Cadence of Hyrule, it gets you very much in the zone. It's sort of you, you're concentrating on nothing but this game. Everything you do feels very natural, and sort of the the flow from one movement into another is very fluid and that sort of thing. So it's it's incredibly satisfying to play, and then it's got this really interesting story to back it up as well. So enjoying that a lot so far. It's it's one of those games that um, most people are going to forget about in a month's time. Yeah, uh, like like Lapis Labyrinth when, I was when we played say, that. Yeah, uh, I it's, love B tier and I S stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it, it 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 it'll come out. A few people will play it. I know that um, Callie from Hololive VN played it, which will hopefully give it a bit of exposure. Oh, good. But yeah, that's um, right up her alley. Everything about the game is right up her yeah, alley. Exactly. Um, but yeah, it's 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 one of those games that sort of is is going to pass by fairly unnoticed, and then in 10, 20 years' time, people are going to go, "Oh, did you ever play Mad Rat Dead?" I was like, "No, never heard of that. What is it?" And like, oh. <laughs> and it'll be it'll, it will stand alongside Lapis Labyrinth as being one of those weird, creative, experimental Nipponichi games that uh, was a lot of fun, but no one really talked about. So, I did a video on it last week um, of just the the opening stages and so on. And once I've spent a bit more time with it and sort of cleared the main story and so on, I'll, I'll do a write up of it on Moe Gamer because it it deserves that much for sure. Did you ever um, figure out what it does in the beginning when you answer all those weird, like, existential questions? No, no. Oh, I forgot to mention that. Yes, right. At the start of the game, while the rat is in the process of dying, uh, while he's being dissected, um, it asks you a series of questions like, uh, sort of like, do you believe in life after death? Do you hate humans? Do you believe this rat deserves to die and all that? So it keeps asking you those questions as you go through the game as well. Oh, Every time it? the rat... Every time the rat sort of passes out and sees the rat god again, he, he's he, he sort of asked a few more of those questions. It's like, it's just sort of like asking, do you do you really believe in what you're doing and that sort of thing? And so I, I assume there's going to be several endings based on those, but sure. um, I, I, I haven't looked into it yet because I, I don't want to sort of spoil it on my first playthrough. But it just made yeah. me think of like when you start like like sequences like that are usually reserved for like much bigger games, right? Like yes. when you start like a tactics ogre and it like generates your stats. Yeah, <laughs> or yeah. like assigns your class, and I'm like, well, this is a rhythm game. Why is it acting? Why is it asking Pete if he believes that like people can be good people? Like, what is going on? Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to see what what that does by the end of things. But uh, yeah, 
yeah re- really interesting game so uh, looking forward to uh, seeing how that concludes there's there's some other sort of b-tier uh, nipponichi stuff in the works as well that i've already pre-ordered but just because I, I i know i will enjoy these games now and so b-tier nipponichi is, is something i will happily pre-order now so there's one coming up called poison control have you seen this one at all um, I, you know what? I was looking at like a pre upcoming pre-orders list this morning, and I saw it, but I don't know anything about it. I don't really know a lot about it either, but it, it seems to be, um, again, it's sort of a very kind of existential thing that's sort of about exploring the inner psyche and so on, and it's about sort of cleaning up the poison inside people's souls and that sort of thing. Sure. Um, it it looks like there's there's sort of elements of of uh, almost elements of splatoon in there in that sort oh, of like cool. you got one character you can clean up the poison and one character you can sort of fight things and so you have to sort of switch between them and clean up paths for the other character and that sort of thing and yeah it, it sounds potentially very very interesting but i don't know a lot about it but sort of based on my experience with the other b-tier nipponichi stuff I'm, I'm more than happy to give that a chance when that shows up so poison control is a turf war style action RPG. Souls. Yes. <laughs> Join forces with Poisonette to purify the Hell's Bells spiritual realms born from yep. sullied hearts of girls. Sounds good, right? <laughs> who, who made this? I mean, Nipponichi. Yeah, okay, I get. But like, I mean, like who? Who? Like person who? Yeah. This sounds cool, and it has one like this, like overly saturated, like candy pink. How have I not yes. heard of this? Yeah, no, I, I, I Nisa haven't been pushing this one hard. Um, they 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 sort of put pre-orders up a little while back and said, "Hey, look at this if you want," but then oh, haven't really mentioned it since. It looks like a mobile since. game. <laughs> I mean, not like just visually, it is not like it is not a techie, attractive game. This is definitely like low-budget stuff. Yeah, that, that's probably why they're not. This mm-hmm. looks really cool, though. I wonder if this is the same people behind like Penny Punching Princess and and Princess. I, th- I, th- Princess I think it is actually. I think it is. I think I remember reading that somewhere. Because it's um, a very similar art style. Yeah, so that would that would explain a lot, certainly. But yes, I think you're right on that. I I vaguely remember reading that somewhere. Those are cool yeah, games. But- I haven't played the Princess one, but I I love Penny Pun- the second one. But I love the first one, Penny Punching Princess. Yeah. Yeah good stuff so yeah nipponichi are, are good and the other thing i've have been playing uh, recently is i'm co- obviously continuing the italian mega feature over on moe gamer i'm in the middle of atelier lulua at the minute um oh, so cool. i've sort of i've sort of skipped forward in time a bit um uh, because uh, atelier lulua for the unfamiliar was a very late fourth release in the arland trilogy so it follows up um atelier rorana totori and meru and um it's really good it's really good it's it's um quite different from the previous ones in that it's less about sort of being based in a single hub and doing stuff and it's actually got it actually feels quite like the iris games in some ways in that you sort of go on a big journey there's a sense of adventure moving around a larger map um there's lots of sequences where you're developing your relationships with the various shopkeepers um and it's got some some great characters and it's it's really nice to see uh, how some of the the classic characters from the rest of the Arlen series have evolved over that. There's a lot of series fan service in there, sort of characters that are mentioned or show up in there. Um, but at the same time, because it unfolds quite a while after the previous Arlen game, it's also quite a good entry point to the series as well, because it's um, 
It's got quite accessible mechanics that are a bit different from the previous ones. It doesn't have a time limit. Uh, it's got a date system, but the only thing the date system is used for is that certain things happen in certain months. So like in November, you can go and pick a certain flower. In December, you can go to the fair in Ireland and that sort of thing. But there's okay. no actual time limit. Oh, that's good. Um, I, I like that stuff. I like like yeah. the time-sensitive stuff. I yeah. just don't like feeling like the, the, the actual thrust of the game is tied to like being rushed or like missing things yeah yeah so, so so there's no time limit for anything on this not even like the the little quests you do it's just do these when you feel like it um and the the overall structure of it is really interesting because it's it's based on the uh the main character getting this book uh that only she can read and um most 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 of your progress in the game is dependent on deciphering this book and what you do is you read a chapter and it will give you a bit of text and some of the words will be missing uh, and it will give you just sort of like a vague clue as to what the what the missing words are and in order to fill in the words you need to craft a particular item or you need to beat a particular enemy or you need to visit a particular location um, based on these vague clues and there's just this really nice sense of um, sort of solving a mystery as you're going through it and it's it's there is like a linear story to the whole thing that, that you progress through but solving these solving these little puzzles and deciphering these little sequences in the book along the way there's a lot of optional objectives you can do that will unlock new recipes and stuff like that it's okay. it just adds a really sort of interesting and varied um side to the to, to the sort of gameplay and overall structure of it and that's that's one of the things that reminds me very much of the iris series in that there were mm. there were side quests in there that they didn't necessarily make a big deal of but they sort of naturally flowed into what you were doing you sort of ended up very much inhabiting that world and sort of taking on various tasks and things because it felt like the right thing to do at the time not because you had a checklist of things to do but because it felt like just something you'd you'd want to you'd want to check out and see what happened um so yeah that's been really enjoyable so far i'm probably about i guess maybe two thirds three quarters of the way through it so far uh so on on the way to the end of it there's obviously going to be some interesting i looks like there might be some sort of interesting maybe dimension hopping or time traveling shenanigans in it at some point um it explains uh, a lot of interesting mysteries that were kind of left unresolved in the previous island games as well which is nice um so people who've been following that sub-series of atelier for a while will want to play this one because it answers a lot of questions that the old games just didn't answer how inaccessible uh, so would it be to me if I decided I wanted to play it? Like, like not having played the other the Arlen trilogy. Like, not how, at all. Like, uh, super lost would I be? You you wouldn't be super lost at all. It it, it takes great pains to sort of um, provide context, but without sort of being overly patronizing about it. So you will sort of you will meet um, Rorana and Tottery and Meru along the way. Uh, but because the main character sort of hasn't met these people before, she, someone will then explain who these people are and oh, what okay. their what their importance is and what they achieved and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it, like I say, it is actually a very good entry point because although you will have that additional context and you'll be able to appreciate some of that series fan service in there if you have played the previous games, it's certainly not in any way inaccessible to people who haven't played them. So if you want to give it a try, yeah, I'd, I'd recommend it. This sounds it's, like it's... one that would work for me. And I always yeah, want I... to play the series, but there's always stuff that won't work for me. And this sounds like yeah. one that might actually stick. Yeah, I, I, I think it will. I think it will. Uh, it's, it's definitely worth a try. And I, I do particularly want to sort of celebrate this one a bit because it, it came out the same year as Riser. And oh, yeah, so nobody cared Obviously it got... It. 
yeah, obviously it got completely overshadowed by Riser as a result. Uh, but it's a really good game. It's got really cool mechanics. The combat system is a lot of fun. Um, there's a lot of sort of emphasis on um, it's it's, it's turn-based, but there's uh, an emphasis on formation in it. So you have a front row of three characters, and then two characters who sort of sit in the back row in the spaces between the front three characters. Um, and then based on actions that the characters in the front row take, sometimes you can trigger actions from the ones in the back row. So like there's there's things like where if you exploit an elemental weakness, then one character will come and do a follow up attack and that sort of thing. Uh, okay. But then there's also like support skills and stuff. So like if if a character gets inflicted with a status ability, if the appropriate character is standing in the right place behind them, they will then cure that status ability and that sort of thing. So there's a there's reason to use all the different characters and put them in different formations and that sort of thing. Um, it's added a lot of very welcome quality of life features like um in the previous Arland games um if you wanted to make use of consumable items you would have to sort of keep making them or use the various mechanics in there that would let you uh, sort of either buy more of them or get your uh, homunculi to keep making them but in this there's things like uh, there's a restock system where every time you go back to your workshop you've got a guy there who you just pay money and he restocks all the stuff that you had in your inventory before you left the previous time oh okay so like if you so like if you go out with like a basket full of bombs and healing items and that stuff and and you use them all it, you get back to your workshop just pay this guy a bunch of money and he will put your inventory back to how it was before uh, which is great because that means that you don't have to keep making what are sometimes quite difficult items to make so you can make sort of maybe three or four of the, of like a really good bomb or something like that and then just keep restocking it each time you come home so that means you just have to concentrate on ensuring you've got enough money on hands to be able to do that so that's where the quests come in that's where sort of making items that are sort of cash crops come in and sell stuff and yeah everything intertwines really nicely that sounds great yeah it's really good really good i've been really pleased with that so far so at the moment as i record this on mariogamer.net we're about halfway through exploring atelier miraru which is the immediate predecessor and then i'll be writing about that within sort of the next few weeks or so so now, watch out for is that like a direct direct sequel right like you're like one of the daughters of one of the main characters from the original art. so so right. the, the way it goes is yeah you have atelier Rorina first um which uh, unfolds over the course of three years then Atelier Tottery is, uh, she is the apprentice of Rowena, and that unfolds like five years after the end of Rowena. Then Meruru unfolds like another five years after the end of Tottery, uh, and she is the apprentice of Tottery. And then Lulua is uh, Rowena's daughter. Okay, I was going to say, one came out recently where you were someone's daughter, and I couldn't remember yeah. which one it was. Yeah, so, so Lulua is, is Rowena's daughter. So Rowena is like 35 by the time that Lulua comes around, because so she, she was like 15 at the start of start of the series and she's 35 by by this point so lulua is, is her daughter um yeah so so it ties in in that respect but like i say you don't need to have played the previous ones this is a good entry point and then if you want to go back and explore the previous ones then you can do which is cool yeah so after i'm done with that it's on to the dusk series which i know is one of the most uh sort of well-regarded uh sub-series in the atelier series i'm looking forward to that but yeah i'm having a great time with lulua at the moment so uh yeah given that plenty of love all right uh, that's about everything i've been up to that isn't ps2 related so <laughs> we'll take a short break there uh, and then we've got lots and lots and lots of ps2 things to talk about so we'll see you in just a moment
キラピカピカ素敵だね私宝石大好きだよそう、ね、そうそうそうそうそうそう。Yeah, but I don't know. At the same time, this, was a, this, this is always a surprise to me when, when I, like, I look back at the PS2 and I consider it's 20 years old and I look at the copyright date on the title screens for games and I think, is it really that old? Because, I mean, we'll come on to this when we talk about some specific games, but there's, there's a certain timeless quality to, to a lot of PS2 stuff that. Yes. I, th- I, th- I think more than any other console, this, this is one that has sort of remained relevant for me pretty much constantly since I、uh, uh, first had it. And I think we'll discuss that. That has a lot to do with the tech. Yeah. To, to, to me, like, PS2 was when games started getting big. Yes. Like, cinematic. Like, big budget. Like, like, they started to feel like these substantial entertainment investments, not just.、Mm-hmm. Like, the scope and scale of a PS2 game was such that we had never seen before.、Mm-hmm. And, like, even the Dreamcast, which kind of bridged the gra- gap between the 32 bit and the PS2 era, it was like an in betweener system. The, the focus of the Dreamcast was mostly on arcade style experiences, with the exception of a few RPGs and, and large scale platformers. The Dreamcast didn't really do big games. Yeah. So yeah. The, PS, the PS2 was like. These massive cinematic experiences and、mm-hmm. it really like invented what we really just consider normal now. Yeah. But at the same time, though, the thing I find fascinating about the PS2 looking back at it today is that it's not just those things. No, it's both. It's, the, it's, a, yeah, hybrid、exactly. ti- it's a hybrid time. Yeah. So the PS2 has got plenty of those sort of Dreamcast style arcade experiences on there. But it's also got the beginning of what we now know as sort of big budget AAA games as well. And I think that is sort of aptly demonstrated by, by my first experience with the PlayStation 2, which was、um, sort of、um, around, I forget exactly what year it was, but、um, for those who don't know, my, my brother John Davison has been working in the games business for. Most, most of his adult life, basically. So he, he worked on a bunch of magazines here in the UK.、Um, he used to be in charge of、um, sort of one of the big PC magazines here in the UK called PC Zone. And while he was working there, he got headhunted by Ziff Davis over in the States, who invited him over to go and run Electronic Gaming Monthly and the official PlayStation magazine.、Um, and so, sort of around the turn of the century, it must have been, he moved over to the States. 
And my first experience with the PlayStation 2 was uh, when me and my family went over to visit him. And he had a PlayStation 2. Because it was so new and so so exciting. Like I, I hadn't seen anything about it in in the uk at the time i sort of seen mention of it in magazines and so on but i hadn't seen one running i didn't have one and that sort of thing so going to visit my brother was always exciting because he he always had the latest consoles and the latest games because of the work he was doing and so uh while i was there he, he very graciously allowed me to spend most of my time there um sitting in front of his ps2 enjoying the games that he had um and the two that i became most obsessed with during that initial period um sort of are a nice demonstration of those two extremes that we're talking about so one of them was time splitters mm. and the other one was orphan scion of sorcery <laughs> Shay for life. <laughs> so so i mean time splitters is uh sort of a very arcadey take on the first person shooter we'll talk we'll talk a bit more about this in detail when we sort of move on past these initial stories so but time splitters very much represents the arcadey angle of things it's a very gameplay centric experience it has what it calls a story mode, but it has no sort of narrative. It has no cutscenes. It has nothing like that. It is a pure gameplay experience. And then Orphan Sign of Sorcery is a cutscene heavy. It's got lots of anime cutscenes. It's got like, it's fully voiced. It's got lots of sort of cinematic battle sequences and that sort of thing. It was spectacular when I first played it. Um, and I was obsessed with both of them because they they provided two very different experiences that I was very much into. So I really enjoyed the gameplay of Time Splitters, and I really enjoyed the spectacle of Orphan. Um, and in fact, I played Time Splitters so much that uh, while my brother was out, their neighbour came over to complain about all the uh, relentless gunfire that was blasting out through his speakers and through their wall. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, got in a bit of trouble for that. But yeah, that was that was my first experience with, with the PS2, um, and it, it really sort of highlighted that difference for me highlighted the fact that yes yeah, this is a sure. platform that was going to have new experiences as well as more impressive advanced takes on things that i'd seen before and of course all physical <laughs> yes <laughs> everything if a game yes. existed on ps2 it was physical yes for, and for for every you know for every metal gear solid 3 there's an adventures of cookies and cream Yes, for, you know, for for every Dragon Quest Eight, there's an alien hominid. Like there yes. is just it's just uh, Gradius. F- Gradius. One of the first games I got on the PS2 was a, the CD printed collection of Gradius three and four. Yeah, yeah. Like, the, which was then immediately followed up by a massive scale licensed Gundam action game. <laughs> like, like. The, the the polar extremes of both types of experiences being readily available yeah yeah i and i i love that and i think sort of a really defining moment in my own gaming life was when i bought my bought my own ps2 so the ps2 first came out while i was at university um and so so we were all enjoying our student loans we got our, we got a student loan in and so like that was more money than we could ever possibly imagine at the time uh, and so i thought I'll buy a PS2. I'll buy a PS2. That seems like a productive thing to do with my student loan. Um, <laughs> um, and it, it, that was a big deal for me because it, it was the first big thing that I'd really bought for myself. Um, I mean, yes, with money from a loan rather than money that I technically, quote unquote, earned. But it was still the first big thing that I'd bought for myself. Oh, you paid it back. <laughs> 
still am paying it back. Yeah, I was going to um, say, we're in the process <laughs> of doing so. That PS2 now, with interest, has cost you roughly $800. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it, I remember specifically when I was looking around uh, the shop that I bought it from, um, there was a fair few games available at the time, because I, I didn't buy it at launch. I bought it like a few months after, so the price had dropped a little bit. Um, but I remember looking at the lineup of games and thinking... Okay, there's there's some stuff that I've heard of. There's some stuff that's been hyped up a lot. There's stuff that's obviously really popular that uh, sort of my friends have talked about. And then I looked around a bit and I saw some games that like I'd never heard of. I hadn't seen mentioned in magazines anywhere, but I I picked it up and I thought it looked interesting. And that game was Shadow of Memories by oh, Konami. Yeah. Um, I thought, you know what? I'm going to buy a PS2 and I'm going to buy a copy of this game that I've never heard of. Um, so I bought it, I uh, took it home and I hooked it up and I played it and I loved it. And I was like, wow, why has no one talked about this game? And th- yeah, the rest is history, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you love that. We've talked about that game so many times on this cast. It's so yeah, good. Exactly. But yeah, fr- from there, the PS2 became sort of an integral part of my daily life and my social life as well as being something that I just I just enjoyed unwinding with after a day at university. So there were many, many evenings where me and my friend Sam in particular, we would spend an evening at my uh, at my rented student accommodation having a takeaway curry from the local curry establishment, getting very drunk and playing Grand Theft Auto 3. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically Grand Theft Auto 3, because that, that, that is a game that just sort of really resonated with both of us at the time. It was the perfect takeaway curry and drunk game um (laughs) (laughs) just because just because you you could play that game you could just piss about with it and you could you could have a a, a sort of semi-meaningful experience with it absolutely off your tits after a night at the union bar with their triple vodka and orange juice for a pound and uh yeah so we we had so much fun with that and you know what just just before we started recording today i thought oh i need some grand theft Auto three footage i don't i don't, ha- I don't have any and I, i've got a copy so I, might, I may as well record a bit myself so you know what in 20 minutes of playing grand theft Auto three before we started recording here i had more fun than i had in the entirety of grand theft Auto five yeah yeah <laughs> i never even played grand theft Auto five but it's diminishing returns yeah i, t- I, th- I think the, the the thing is that again tying with what we said already grand theft also 3 although it is a big spectacular impressive open world cinematic experience at the same time it doesn't forget that the original grand theft auto has its roots in arcade style gameplay yeah the original grand theft autos were top-down arcadey style games they were yeah. score based challenge based yeah you had a score you had lives you had time limits yeah and that sort of thing and it, it, grand theft auto 3 is that crossover moment where it brings in this new stuff but it doesn't forget the core appeal of what made the original game so enjoyable so like hopping in an ambulance and doing the paramedic missions or the taxi missions and that sort of thing it's pure arcade style fun yeah and it definitely has that arcadey element and that sort of thing just feels completely absent from the new games and i also think like sort of grand theft auto is often held up as sort of like a, a, a quite a good example of of satire of modern society and so on but Again, the humor has changed over time as well. Like, looking at Grand Theft Auto 3, this is when DMA Design, as they were known at the time, became Rockstar North. They were still sort of like a scrappy Scottish developer who were 
they'd had a few hits, but they were still sort of... Uh, they, they, their sort of egos hadn't got out of control or anything like that. So a lot of the humour in Grand Theft Auto 3 is actually very British. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, you'll look around and there'll be, there'll be references to things, and it's not like sort of the obvious sort of piss jokes that are all over the place in the newer Grand Theft Auto games, but it's like things like... The the first place where you get your missions from in Grand Theft Auto 3 is called Sex Club 7. And I don't know if you're familiar with S Club 7. Um, yes. That's a story for a different day. <laughs> I'm going to have to ask you about that at some point. Clearly. Teenage Chris really liked S Club 7. <laughs> But yeah, Escape Summer is sort of, sort of very much associated with sort of a, a particular period in British popular culture, and, and sort of that crossed over with Grand Theft Auto Three was a thing, and sort of seeing, seeing that sort of thing referenced in Grand Theft Auto Three really highlighted kind of the difference that was there. So yeah, that was that was a big part of um, of uh, sort of my my early experiences with the PS3 while I was at university, and then it remained relevant with me for a long time. So I mean, I, I'm sure you've got a lot of th- specific experiences and things that you want to talk about so what uh what sort of things do you want to really pay homage to this day i mean the, the, the it all ties into kind of what we mentioned was just like the ps2 felt like this genesis point of like gaming as an art form mm-hmm. like yeah. l- less a distraction and more of like a a thing like the p the, to me ps2 is where games came to this realm where like people started talking about them in the same breath as, like, movies and television. Yes. Like, so, like, everything on the PS2, like, that I think about was just huge. And, like, like the PS2 was the genesis of so much. Mm -hmm. So, and and it's also, like, you were mentioning, like, you had it in college. I had, I got my PS2 in in, in high school. Like I said, I got it as a gift for my 16th birthday. So, like, to me, ownership of the PS2 isn't just about, like, the games... But it's about, like, the memories of it being tied to, like, essentially the most formative years of my life. Yes. Like, yeah. so I got the PS2 as a gift for my 16th birthday. One week later, I got my first ever job, which was at the game, the uh, the privately owned game store, like, walking distance from my house that I had been yeah. at probably every day since I was 10, right? Like, I walked in, and I was like, I said to the, the owner, I was like, hey, I'm 16 now, here's my working papers. He was just like, hired! And then, like, <laughs> so, like, the first video game I ever bought for myself with money that I earned at a job, not money that was given as a gift, not allowance. Yeah. The first video game I ever bought for myself with money I earned from a job, from work, was Zone of the End, the first Zone of the Enders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, like, that really just sets the tone for me for, like, the PS2. Like, so from 16 to whenever... So I got... I got my PS3 when I graduated college. So I was 21. So from 16 mm-hmm. to 21, with the exception of like also enjoying the GameCube, like the PS2 was my world. Yeah. yeah. Right? And like during that time I worked in game retail. So like the PS2 was everything. Like the like the numbers between the original Xbox and the and the and the GameCube versus the PS2 in terms of like ownership, like breadth of ownership across the world, was like yeah. no no contest, right? Like everyone had a PS2. Like I, I knew very few people who 
had a, just a GameCube or just an Xbox. Most people had both yeah. or none. Like it, like it was massive. It was absolutely massive, and like everyone had a PS2. Everyone wanted to know about PS2 games, and like this was the era where like the internet wasn't as ubiquitous as a place for information. Like game enthusiast sites were like for game enthusiasts. Yeah. And like and like uh, uh, cell phones, right? We didn't have smartphones, so like mm-hmm. me being the guy at the independent game shop who knew about the PS2, like like knowledge of the PS2 and like games and like having my finger on the pulse of what games were interesting, what games were worth playing, like it was like my life mm-hmm. for like five straight five six years, and so I just. Every game on the PS2, like the big games on the PS2, are just all huge. They're all milestones to me, like just yeah. massive, massive stuff. Like you know, we love uh, we love Muso. Yeah, right. We love Muso games. PS2, Dynasty mm-hmm. Warriors 2, which is the first Muso game, was a PS2 launch title. Yep. It, only possible because the power of the PS2 allowed for that many characters in those larger environments to be rendered for the first time. It was the first time mm-hmm. we'd ever have a game of this scale, an action game of this scale. And now it's what? It's a, an institution in gaming, Muso. Yeah. Like, it's been around. Uh, PS2 launch title. We uh, we mentioned the, uh, the unfortunate circumstances surrounding Level 5's financial troubles uh, earlier in this episode. Well... Uh, I, level five became a name I knew because of Dark Cloud or Dark Chronicle or Dark Genie or whatever it's called in your in your respect <laughs> the respective region. Your and like subsequently, Dark Cloud Two was an absolute revelation in oh, scale, an size, game. and visual and visual presentation. Um, and Level five continued to grow as a premier RPG developer during the PS2 era. Right, so like before they became these like kings of like licensed product and creating multimedia franchises, they were this scrappy, hyper focused house who just made the best RPGs. Yeah, Dragon yeah. Quest Eight, Rogue Galaxy, these massive, expansive games that went on uh, to, to to be huge, huge world building, incredible visual presentation. Like we hadn't seen anything like it. So it's just like. Every story of the PS2 is a, is a story like that. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, I think a lot about, you know, we were talking about Nipponichi. Well, Nipponichi wasn't a household name until the first Disgaea came out on the PS2 and blew people out of the water. Right? Yeah. Like they, they'd always been around in the background making games, and there were a couple of their games on the PS1 that came westward. But people didn't really become aware of them as a brand and a development house until they started cranking out these amazing massive-scale strategy RPGs on the PS2. Disgaea 1 and 2, Phantom Brave, Makai Kingdom, Soul Nomad. Like, these games, like, rocked the RPG community and, like, cemented NIS as, like, the house we know them as today. Yeah. PS2 era. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, there were a lot of names like that that sort of really came to prominence in the PS2 era. Not necessarily started in the PS2 era, but definitely came to prominence. And I think one of the biggest ones has got to be Persona as well. Yeah, yep. That's in my notes too. SMT in general, people knowing what SMT is, just came from Persona and Nocturne on the PS2. Yeah, yeah. This, I mean, Persona sort of ties in with... um, 
I think probably the PS2 is the the console that I have the most sort of uh, kind of hard to explain. I, I guess you got them memories that are more than just the games, if you know what I mean. Sure. So sort of, I associate a lot of PS2 games with specific times of my life, specific conversations, specific groups of friends, specific events. Yeah, because more cause than of the, just because of the formative years you had it. Like yeah, that was exactly. when you were becoming a person, an adult. Yeah. Exactly, and like a, a big part of that was I remember, um, sort of back when OneUp.com was a thing, because uh, that's that's another site that my brother used to work on as part of his time at Ziff Davis. So he he helped launch OneUp, and so obviously, um, to sort of help him out and support him and that sort of thing, I was sort of a very active participant in the OneUp.com community. And uh, people who've been following my work for a long time will know that um, on OneUp.com. Um, they used to have a podcast called One Up Yours. And on one episode of that, uh, they started talking about the concept of, of the pile of shame, which is sort of a, a very, very well-established idea now. People tend to refer to it as the backlog these days, but like the, the pile of shame is sort of the original concept of games that you've had in your collection for ages that have been gathering dust that you've never played um, that you think you should probably get to at some point. And, our lives yeah exactly so so the the original uh concept was that the the participants on the podcast who at the time were i think it was my brother garnet lee and luke smith um they were talking about psychonauts uh which was a, a game that had come out that uh sort of they knew was really good but none of them had played it they they sort of all bought it but none of them had got around to playing it so the intention was for them to um sort of go away and play it and then come back for the next podcast episode and talk about it um for one reason or another likely the fact that they were running a sort of successful and very busy websites none of them got around to doing that um but those of us who sort of uh, hung out on the oneup.com forums and talked about the show between episodes and so on we decided well if they're not going to do it why don't we do it so we all played psychonauts at the same time and we talked about it in a forum thread and um thus a group of people that came to be known as the squadron of shame were born and uh sort of for, for a significant number of years that was sort of my primary group of friends that i talked about with games with online uh we hung out on the oneup.com forums when oneup eventually imploded a few years later after my brother left i hasten to add um we then moved on to sort of uh, early forms of social media, Twitter and that sort of thing. Uh, and we eventually started doing a podcast. But one thing I particularly remember from those early one-up years is that uh, Persona 3 came out. Um, and it came out in the States. And uh, my friends that we were talking about games with, uh, members of the Squadron of Shame, they were all talking about Persona 3. And it sounded like exactly the sort of game I wanted to play. It was a game that was an RPG, but it was also a social simulator, and it was set in a school, it was anime style, and I was like, oh my god, I need to play this right now. And Atlas wouldn't release that game for at least another, like, eight months in Europe. Oh, <laughs> and so I was sitting here gnashing my teeth at all these great stories that my friends were having from, from playing Persona 3, and then it finally came out uh, in Europe. And I bought it, and I absolutely sort of marathoned through that game, all 100 hours of it, and wrote about it so much, so many oneup.com blog posts on Persona 3, and discussions on the forums and so on. And again, that was sort of 
a really defining time for me because that game had such an impact on me when I first played it. I had such positive associations with it because it was something that my friends had enthused about. And it was one of the first games that I played and I really felt that it sort of spoke to me. It sort of grabbed me. It sort of said, this is a game for you. This is a game that sort of does all of the things that you enjoy. It engages you. It grabs hold of your emotions. You enjoy how it plays. It was just... Yeah, it was it was perfect for me at the time, and it's a PS2 game, and yeah, yeah. It, one of the earliest times I remember that really happening—a game really having that much of an impact on me. Yeah, I mean, it can't be it can't be stated enough that, like, especially for our generation, just like uh, that the timing was right. So, like, yeah. the P the PS2, it's important to add also like. 16 to 21 like this was the age where i was starting to establish what i call a critical headspace about games yes where i wasn't just like i like this game i don't like this game but it was more like what about this game what design Mm -hmm. elements visual presentation the ps2 era was really you know 16 like teens right that's when people start listening to like music and caring about music but like i never yeah. really cared about music in a big way to me it was games right so like i 16 17 18 the ps2 era for me that's when i started paying attention to developer and publisher houses by name yeah Le- learning yeah. about people like kojima by name mm-hmm. learning about people like hideki kamiya like learning to follow works of artists i respect i came to do that the way some people do that for comic books or writers or 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 musicians through gaming so like i started yeah. to develop that that vocabulary that critical eye that way of thinking about games the ps2 era is where i cut my teeth on that where i mm-hmm. where i started to be able to be the person i am today who can talk about games the way i can talk about games that came from the breadth of experiences that the PS2 era had to offer. Yeah, I was I was very much the same. I was very much the same. I I sort of remember consciously playing stuff and sort of thinking about them on on a level that I hadn't thought about games before, and wanting to talk about them uh, on that level that I hadn't sort of talked about games before. And sort of good examples of that are stuff like um, Silent Hill Two. Mm-hmm silent hill 2 is sort of held up as a as a really good example of sort of one of probably the most intelligent games that has been created yeah uh in terms of its narrative and its presentation and so on and i but at the same time this is another one that i've got a very specific memory of um to do with the people that i played it with and the context in which i played it so silent hill 2 um Uh, me and my friends that i went to school with we had very much enjoyed the original silent hill on playstation one Mm -hmm. um and so one time when uh those friends came to visit me at university uh one of them had bought silent hill 2 and he thought oh yeah well we'll play this through together because we all enjoyed the first one and what ended up happening was that um my friend woody got really drunk and passed out my friend ed fell asleep in the chair and i played silent hill th- two through from start to finish in a single sitting <laughs> but yeah by by the end of that i was sort of so blown away by the by sort of the presentation of that story and the sort of symbolism and that sort of thing it helped that i was sort of studying english at the time at university so i was sort of hyper aware of a lot of things particularly in stuff like horror and that sort of thing um 
and so yeah it really struck me as, as an experience that was sort of doing a lot more and that games were at a point where we could talk about them in in a lot more depth we could talk about them in a lot more depth than just like the graphics are good the sounds are good the gameplay is all right you could talk about them in terms of their design and their art and their themes and their characterization and their narrative and that sort of thing and that was fascinating to me and again yeah. form formative experience yeah absolutely um i'm just trying to think of like other like incredible firsts of the ps2 era that like set the tone for like the era we live in now uh monster hunter that was another mm -hmm. franchise that started on the ps2 um um cavia and the rise of yoko taro started yep. on the ps2 yep. with drakengard and the ghost in the shell licensed game he made um uh i also think the ps2 era was i mean integral to establishing hideki kamiya as the developer we know today yes um, yeah now obviously Kamiya had been around uh, his involvement with resident evil and, and whatnot but the ps2 gave us devil may cry mm -hmm. and that's not only important because of hideki kamiya but it's super important because that essentially birthed a genre just like mm -hmm. muso did uh, just like the first muso and ps2 did like the, the specific like stylish 3d character action game yeah now like kamiya would continue to be the master of that with like bayonetta but like during that era it was very specifically like an era of the ps2 Mm -hmm. Like there, yeah. like a, a genre of the PS2. There wasn't a ton of these types of games on like later generations. Like I think about the PS3 and the PS4, and like games like this are actually kind of rather far and few between. Yeah. But on the PS2, there were a ton of like Me Too games, kind to like pick up what Kamiya laid down with Devil May Cry. Like uh, Sega tried to reboot Shinobi, and they had Shinobi and Nightshade with that kind yeah. of like hard-as-nails 3D action experience. And, you know, you've been we've been talking back and forth a bit about, um, what is that, Red Ninja that, yeah. that you've been playing? Like, that's in a similar vein. Um, uh, Red Company, who worked did a lot of work with Sega, developed Bujin Guy, which is a really weird game that I love. That's a three D character action game based around the aesthetic and the movements of three of Hong Kong wire action cinema, like yes. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon stuff. Mm -hmm. um, yep. Uh, Sega and AM2 made an action game based on Osama Tezuka's Dorora comic, Dororo comic book called blood will tell that's only mm -hmm. that's becoming popular again now because they made a new animated series of it this year or last year yeah. maybe yeah but like back on the ps2 game there was a game you could play of that which was amazing mm -hmm. um game uh yeah. i'm losing track of the name of this developer uh <laughs> the, the genji the genji series yeah the, the the second one was like a notorious launch title in the ps3 but the first one was on the ps2 it was great Mm -hmm. um, Koji Igarashi, right? Uh, the the Castlevania guy. He had Nano Breaker, which was an original franchise, and yep. the the two Castlevanias on the, the that era were. I mean, they were also available on the Xbox, but um, they were outstanding 3D character action games. Like, yeah, yeah. Like this was very much a PS2 generation genre. Yeah, and I mean, you've 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 got this this became such a thing that it sort of crossed over to the west as well didn't it because the ps2 was when we first got god of war as well that's right god mm -hmm. of war what was that other one like that first party sony one that was pretty cool mark of kree oh yeah i i, I know nothing about that game it's one that i always sort of see in secondhand shops and think oh 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> Walk past it. But um, yeah, yeah. Primal. That was one. Yep. Yeah, it was it was a huge thing. And like when you think about these games, they're a logical evolution of like you know gaming before it. But mm-hmm. like Camilla solidified that with Devil May Cry. And like once yeah. again, like that level of action, that pace, that presentation, it all solidified because of the tech of the PS2. Like wasn't mm-hmm. you know wouldn't have been possible before that. Uh, it was just the right combination of things. And of course, from that from Kamiya's work on the PS2 with God Hand and Okami, like we now have Platinum, one of the most premier developers yes. in existence. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Coming back to uh, developers that like started becoming known because of the PS2 era, you know, I talked about Nippon Ichi, but also uh, uh, Gust. Yep, um, yep. Gust and... Um, like we had the Artonelico, the first two Artonelico games. We had the Atelier Iris series, followed up by the um, the school one. Uh, Manakemia? Man, uh, Manakemia, that's it. Mm-hmm. Yep, so like, yes, technically we did get, um, uh, what's that game? Rhapsody, which was a Gust game in the West on the mm-hmm. PS1. But like Gust games were far and few between um, until the PS2 era. Now look at it, what, you know, we were just talking about Lulua earlier and like the... Yeah, like yeah. now it's a given that that Atelier games come out in the West, mm-hmm. like Gust. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, just there's just so many stories like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's sort of it's sort of so, so many series really hitting their stride as well. I think as well. So stuff that maybe started in the PS1 era and sort of the PS2 is where they really really got rolling along. Um, I mean, Atelier is a good example of that, for one. Um, another one that I, I actually came to much later than sort of when PS2 was current, but one that very obviously hit its stride as part of the PS2 generation is uh, Ace Combat. Oh, Namco. for sure. Yeah, that was so, huge on the PS2. Yeah, so I mean, Ace Combat had three games on the PS1, all of which are sort of reasonably well regarded, but if you talk to anyone about Ace Combat, they will inevitably say, did you play Ace Combat 4, 5, or 0, which are the three on PS2. Yeah. Um, and having played two of those, I can understand exactly why, because they are they are incredible experiences. And sort of, I, I, I very deliberately use the word experience there, because... <laughs> Ace Combat is just such a sort of bombardment of your senses in terms of its presentation and how you engage with it and the sheer drama of the experience. It's They are just absolute masterpieces in terms of engaging the player with what's going on and making them excited to do things that we've done before in gaming, but just the way they were presented, just so incredibly exciting. Like there, There is nothing quite like... Um, the, the 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 final missions in Ace Combat Four and Five, where there's sort of these massive, fully recorded, live recorded orchestral and choral pieces accompanying you, shooting down a satellite or blowing up some super weapon from inside in your humble F-15 and that sort of thing. They're, they're just amazing experiences. And like I say, Ace Combat had been around before that, but that increased power and the increased scope that the tech of the ps2 provided just allowed them to really let loose and sort of go so over the top with it but it's they're just magical experiences they really are there was a real sense with these games 
where you could feel the joy of the development teams to have this power at their disposal. Yes. Like yes, their desire absolutely. their desire to push it to its limits to create these experiences for you. Like there's always a feeling like you know, like talking about games that began on the PS1 and transitioned to really hit their stride in the PS2. Like I always think about Metal Gear in this context. Yeah. Yeah. Like I always felt like Fun, you know, like, P- like Metal Gear Solid on the PS1 was obviously a masterpiece. It's legendary. It did incredible things with the PS1's hardware. But there was always a sense on the PS2 that it finally gave Kojima the legroom to make the games he had always wanted to make on the scale yes. he had always wanted to make them. Just, Definitely. Just hours of recorded dialogue, philosophizing and discussing the dangers of the military-industrial complex and conspiracy theories and, and just incredible amounts of world-building on a scale uh, like that, you know, hitherto had not been imagined. Mm-hmm. And... And he really hit a stride in that era between the Zone of the Enders games and Metal Gear Solid 2 and 3 was like that's to me that was like I mean yeah like I'm a game history guy like yeah I'll talk about Police Knots and I'll talk about Snatcher but like once again like we talked about with so many franchises like I feel like really Kojima became a household name with MGS 2 yeah definitely and like the the, the cult like status he has now that the following of diehard fans of which i am one <laughs> com- com- <laughs> comes comes from the scope and scale of works he was able to create with the ps2's hardware yeah um, but there was you know like we mentioned too there's room for weirdness and small stuff and that's what made the ps2 such a an interesting playground because yeah people at every development house were coming out of the woodwork with strange ideas and, and odd games that I don't think today today would have to come from the indie sphere. Yes. But, but in the PS2 era, they came from normal development houses and publishers. You know, we've talked on this cast before about stuff like Capcom had a really weird output in that era of experimental mm-hmm. shit. that They would just throw anything at the wall. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I, I mentioned Under the Skin before. Yes. Which yes. is like a weird game where you play as like an alien, just like causing mischief. It's a very like weird <laughs> arcadey experience. Um, Chaos Legion is another of my favorites. It's like a bizarre hybridization of like squad based troop management with like a Devil May Cry style action game. Yeah. Also Capcom. You would never have seen something like Chaos Legion now. It's too no, weird. No. It's too experimental. It would have to have come from the indie sphere. But this was a second party game that Capcom published this as a major release. Yeah, it's this sort of stuff is what really interests me from a modern perspective because a lot of that weird stuff, although it existed, it didn't tend to get a lot of coverage. It didn't get talked about a lot back in the day. And so, what I found with um, sort of collecting stuff for PS2 now, um, picking up all the stuff that's like fifty p or a pound from CEX these days, that's where some of the most fascinating experiences really lie because. Mm-hmm no one bought these games to begin with no one has talked about them and so no one knows about them and so you pick them up and try them and you're like wow this is something really unusual that i've i've not really experienced before and i think most of my sort of favorite recent experiences recent discoveries on the ps2 have been in that mold so i think of something like um something like sky odyssey which I picked up for 50 pence and then probably yeah. played through the whole thing because i enjoyed it so much sky odyssey is 
I guess you'd call it an evolution of what Nintendo was doing with pilot wings, but at the same time, it's got kind of a sense of narrative and structure that pilot wings didn't have. So pilot wings always very much felt like you were just sort of pissing about with vehicles. In Sky Odyssey, you're doing things like you have a reason to do your thing, like you're flying over the top of a train so you can grab something off the top of it, or you're dropping supplies to people in tents, or you're flying through a canyon that is collapsing around you, or you're landing in these ruins that are inside this cavern system that you've had to take your tiny little biplane into. Um, and it also has music from the guy who did music for Shadow of the Colossus, which just delights me. Oh, that's like Kawatani. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. But yeah, Sky Odyssey, I picked it up for 50p and then absolutely loved it. And I was like, why has no one ever talked about this game? It's wonderful. And then I wrote about it and then a bunch of people came out in the comments and said, I remember this. It was amazing. Why did no one ever talk about it? I, remember, <laughs> I mean, I remember the cover of that game. I never played it, but... Yeah. It's just like so much shit like this, like Sky Gunner. Did you ever play Sky Gunner? I haven't, no. Sky Gunner is like so this company called Pixel Arts, which I, I don't even know if they made any other games after that, but like it was published by Atlas. Uh-huh. But it was just like a almost like a Star Fox style game. Like All right, um yeah. Do you remember in Star Fox sixty four there were like the occasional like open sequences where it would like yes. switch to yeah. like a, a field you could fly around, not not like on, on rails. So like Sky Odyssey is just like that the game. Like all the missions yeah. are, are that. But like you're like these scrappy little like anime kids in these like uh, conceptual like biplanes, like fighting these like massive like battle like air battleships and like trying to take them down and but like all your missiles explode in fireworks so it's like cute and colorful <laughs> and it just has like really i don't know how to describe it other than like it has like a really like candy coated like sweetness to it like the music is like really like yeah touching like trying to like bring a tear to your eye kind of stuff yeah like yeah it's bizarre nobody played it um Irem's Steambot Chronicles? Did you ever play Steambot Chronicles? I haven't, but I do own a copy of it, I think. Irem did a few interesting things in the PS2 era, which I, I've picked up but haven't played yet. So Steambot Chronicles is one. Um, they did, like, a submarine game as well, I think, didn't they? Oh, did they? I, I can't remember the name of. Uh, but, um, is that uh, Submarine Assault or something like that? I can see the cover of it in my in my mind's eye. I can't remember the title. Oh, no, I can't remember the name of it. Um, Sub Rebellion. There you go. That's it. Yeah. 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 Lots of interesting stuff, and then of course we have stuff like the Simple series, yeah, which is the home, the spiritual home of weird shit on the PS2, <laughs> is this budget label from Japan, uh, which just put out any old crap that people could think of from the look of things. <laughs> now you d- you didn't get most of these in North America, which is a real shame. But Barely we got a surprise, like a single digit. Yeah, we got a surprising number of them localized for Europe because um, over here in Europe, we had several sort of budget-centric publishing houses, people like Phoenix Interactive. And, uh, well, I mean, 505 Games are still going today, but in the PS2 era, they were very focused on these sort of low-budget, cheap experiences. So, like, you could pick up these games for probably less than 20 quid uh, when they launched. And again, no one heard of them. No one bought them. They would get panded reviews if they got reviewed at all. Uh, but these days, pick them up, and they are fascinating experiences. They are wonderful. A um, couple of other discoveries along those lines. Uh, there's a wonderful puzzle game uh, called Detonator that I it was one of those ones that I just sort of picked up in an armful of stuff from CEX that cost like 50p each. Um, Detonator is a puzzle game about demolishing buildings. 
Oh yeah, I remember you telling me about this. This game's really interesting. Doesn't it have like a really foreboding like soundtrack? It's terrifying. It's absolutely <laughs> terrifying. It's it's got it's got like this really stark like minimalist presentation during the the puzzle sequences, but it's got this absolutely haunting spooky soundtrack in the background and then when you complete a level you get this video sequence of like the, the, this like black and white archive video footage of buildings being demolished with this really sad music playing and you, you feel really bad for what you've just done and you're like what, what this is a this is a puzzle game that's making me feel things what is happening here um yeah that's that's that sort of a, a real favorite sort of weird experience that I, I just picked up on a whim and ended up absolutely loving and there's so much stuff like that on ps2 and like like we said at the beginning the remarkable thing about all these things is that you could you can own them and have them in a box on your shelf it's and, the only choice yeah and something about that just makes these experiences so incredibly valuable to me like even now even if they're things that i've discovered recently I know that I've got a copy of Detonator on my shelf and I can pull it down and I can show it to someone and say, hey, look at this weird puzzle game about demolishing buildings that might make you cry. <laughs> I remember watching the footage of that game when you first discovered it. I just, I just like... I was like, I don't need to be made to feel like this game. Why are you, why? I feel bad enough about every aspect of my life normally. <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing. It's like a single piano in the background. Yeah. Oh, outstanding. But there were those other puzzle games that people ate up, like those rhythm puzzles, like like, like Fantavision, right? People loved Fantavision. Oh, Fantavision's great. Yeah, Fantavision's yeah. a good one. Oh man. Yeah, I just. I think it's. I mean, there's obviously there's the the PS2 was such a prolific system. There's, so there's a lot of shit on it as well. We're mm -hmm. just talking about the good memories, but. Mm -hmm. But it was also just like home of a massive amount of shovelware, the likes of uh -huh. which the universe had never, could never even begin to comprehend. <laughs> but there was also like weird, like weird publishers would like come out of the woodwork and like publish excellent Japanese games at like a budget price. Yeah. yeah. Like I'm, I'm thinking about, I don't even remember the name of the company, but this like company appeared out of nowhere and published this game called Mobile Light Force, and it had the worst, I don't know if it was like, uh, it was the oh, worst God, yeah. cover art I had ever experienced in my life. It was like airbrushed robots chasing like a Charlie's Angels looking like crew of women, <laughs> like with like machine guns, but... It's it's Shikigami no Shiro 2. It's like one <laughs> it's one of the most incredible like overhead uh, vertical shoot 'em ups you could possibly imagine. And at the same time they published Mobile Light Force 1 on the PS1 and that was um Gunbird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like it was a very it was a very strange time for these like like these bizarre budget titles. Yeah, I like there were the, the, uh, yeah there were some of those in in the simple series as well because like we I think we've talked about the uh, Shien Ryu games as well. Yes, those of are, those are part of the simple series. Yeah, and they they just sort of came out in a double pack and just sort of quietly released that with no fanfare over here on the PS2. <laughs> but it's fucking Shien Ryu. Those games are amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's just it's so bizarre. 
I also think about the PS2 in as like the early days of the indie scene. Like, are yes. you familiar with Alien Hominid? Yes, yes. More so from when it came out on Xbox 360, but yes. But like, there was a physical copy of Alien Hominid on the PS2. Yep, yep. Like, bizarre. I mean, Behemoth is, is a pretty well-known name now in the indie sphere, um, thanks to... Um, what was that game with the knights? I can't think of the name of it off the top of my Castle head. Crashers. Castle Crashers. Yeah, Castle yeah. Crashers. You know, now they're a pretty well-known name, but like in their, you know, it was indie. It was a twenty-dollar budget release for a weird hand-drawn Contra-style game. <laughs> talk about Contra too. We could talk about the weird Contra reboots, the three D Contra uh, Shattered Soldier, and yep. and then there was the uh, the overhead one. Mm-hmm. Um, which I can't remember the name of right now, but those, mm. those, they were both fantastic. Yeah, I, I've got Shadow Soldier. I don't have the other one, but uh, yeah, Shadow Soldier is a ton of fun. Neo Contra, really, really hard. Yeah, Neo Contra, really hard. Was, was but then it's Contra, so yeah, <laughs> which is great. Like you know, you're not expect you didn't expect that those games came out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Like now that yep. can't happen. Now it's like oh my god. Now it's like konami's developing a new contra game and we'll just like stock it for eight months until it comes out but but mm-hmm. but back in the day it was like i would walk in a shop and just be like shit is that a new contra <laughs> like that's dead now like you can't do that now like yeah. if, if you're into the the industry the way we are like there's, there's yeah. there are no surprises <laughs> but god it's uh the, and like the sheer scale of rpgs mm-hmm the introduction, really, of voice acted dialogue is like a regular thing. Like, do you remember how much people lost their shit when FF10 was fully voice acted? Yep. Like, we, we were like, we have arrived. Like, this is it. This is like the pinnacle. <laughs> <laughs> and just like size, like, like to this day, like FF12, you play the remastered versions on like the modern consoles. And you're just like, this game is tremendous. Yeah. It's yeah. tremendous. The the map screen on Dragon Quest VIII, the, the, the size of Star Ocean III, um, the sheer cinematic scope of the Xenosaga trilogy, like hours of, of, of fully voice-acted cinematics. Like, each Xeno... Saga game has like two movies worth of cinematics in it. Now people hate yeah. that about it. It's something people deride about it. It's not something. It's not something <laughs> I ever had a problem with. I always thought those games were great, but but just like all of that, like this this cinematic presentation of scope and scale, like PS2, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, looking back, it's quite interesting that we had that, but then we also had developers like Gust who were. Uh, unashamed to sort of do things in a older style as well so you had these sort of two threads running at the same time as well so for those who enjoyed the more sort of abstract experiences from previous generations and so on you could still have that experience as well yeah oh yeah i mean peak pixel art man those ps2 era gust games the sprite work in those nipponichi rpgs i mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. like this was this was this was peak pixel art time not it wasn't as prevalent as it is today in like the indie sphere but like every now and then when a company would make a 2d game man that was something special 
I remember being absolutely heartbroken when the first Atelier games were announced for the PS3 and they weren't 2D anymore. Just absolutely <laughs> shattered. Because I was specifically looking forward to seeing what they would do with the PS3 yeah. in HD in 2D. And they, I mean, I get it. I get why they didn't. But, like, yeah, man, those, those Artanelico games, the Artanelico 1 and 2, yep. the sprite work, my God. Mm-hmm. Yes. Incredible stuff. Yeah, it's just, I, it's just hit after hit, mm, like definitely, and non-hit after non-hit that you should still care about. Yeah, definitely. Like, That's... like the we got Growlancer games in the West in English for the first time on the PS2, mm-hmm. the franchise that had existed since the Saturn, and we'd never gotten any of the games. But but uh, this is one of the last things Working Designs ever published was the Girl Lancer double pack. I think it was three and four together in one one double pack. It was the last thing they ever did. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, and we got five, too, after that. I think it was Atlas or one of those other houses brought five over then. Um, that, I mean, that, it's not all joy on the PS2 era, right? Like, the last gasps of, like, true treasure happened yeah. on the PS2. And we've talked about Stretch Panic on here before. <laughs> um, what a way to go out, hey? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but well, Gradius Five, Gradius Five was like Treasure's last true game. Yeah, um, and that is a way to go out because that is mm-hmm. unreal. But um, you know, there, there, there were there were some shifts to the negative direction during those times too. Um, but really, it was part of the reason I loved the PS4 and Switch so much is it feels more like the PS2 felt thanks to the indie sphere. Yeah, like we've we've mentioned it before, but I always just felt like the PS3 360 era was a, I and mean, we've been celebrating it a lot lately because we've been uncovering some hidden gems. But it felt like a more restrictive era in terms of like what was possible in gaming and what was viewed yeah. as legitimate in gaming. Like well, 2D couldn't really hang on during the PS3 era. Everything had to be huge. I, th- I think I think the big thing that happened with that era is that um i mean we we had the rise of digital marketplaces sure and we and we had uh that could then caused people to start thinking of packaged games and digital download games as two distinct things yeah rather than them just being games because in the ps2 era because everything came on a disc everything was just a game yeah whereas as soon as xbox live arcade became a thing you had xbox 360 games and you had xbox live arcade games and never the twain shall meet um, I, I remember and, that like haughty attitude developing from people like this feels like a download game, and yeah, that was like yeah. that's where that you know that phrase of like this game almost like it had no right like, this this game had no right to be on a disc. Yeah, yeah, that like mentality. Yeah, so so I mean in those areas it's not that those games weren't happening; it's just that they didn't have the same prominence and they well they didn't have a retail presence at all is the thing so uh an important way of discovering those games was just cut off from them completely because it it relied on you either reading stuff about them online or discovering them in the store for yourself which was whereas because like those marketplaces were consistently garbage (laughs) yeah exactly and and still are um but yeah there's there, there is so much value to sort of being able to walk into a game store look at the shelves pick up something that looks interesting and thinking i'll take a chance on that um whereas sort of like you say scrolling through a digital marketplace you kind of need to know what you're looking for before you go in 
especially on the console marketplaces steam's discovery is a bit better than it used to be but especially on the xbox and the playstation you kind of need to know what you're looking for before you go in yeah yeah um and i feel too like the death of like game retail as it used to be is a big part of like all that too definitely definitely like the shop i used to work at was all run by like it was independently run. It wasn't like full of corporate bullshit, like a GameStop or, or something yep. is. And it was just all everyone who worked there was an enthusiast, like a passionate, mm-hmm. like, like it was very much like a ma and pa game shop. Like people would come in and like, my son is turning eight. He really likes tanks. Like what? Like what? <laughs> like what? What game would you recommend? And it's, you know, like that. Like that was what it was like in those days. A little yeah. bit. Like it was a bit of like a no man's land. Yeah. Nowadays, it's just like you just like walk into Target and like, yeah, this is cool, I guess. Like, I don't like, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not the same. Like, and I feel the lo- I feel the loss of like that kind of like hominess to gaming as yeah. an enthusiast hobby, like very acutely in like the internet yeah. age. Yeah, very much, very much. I mean, I I still go to game stores every so often, but for the most part for sort of new releases i'll tend to just pre-order them online and this yeah there's definitely something something lost there but at the same time we have sort of other other things that have have moved on like you say i I think you're absolutely right about sort of the ps4 and especially the switch bringing back some of the some of the feeling of the ps2 era not all of it but some of it certainly with things like the the limited run versions of games and the things that um nipponichi software and nice america do with their sort of semi-limited editions of games and that sort of thing we're back to an age where you can pick up more obscure games on a disc and a cartridge and you can have them on your shelf which is wonderful i mean we're not quite at the same stage as we were in the ps2 era like we said because of that lack of retail presence but the big the big loss is that you can't discover them accidentally yeah you have to you have to know about these games and hunt them down now yeah whereas like back in the day on the ps2 era you'd be like what the fuck is cookie and cream oh it's 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 12.99 i like pink bunnies i'll give this a try like that you can't do that you don't do that now really no no. The major retailers keep very small and limited stock on their shelves. You know, it's just not... It's not what it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the PS2 was, like, the last great era of that, really. Yeah, absolutely. I think one uh, one last thing I want to bring up on this is that the, um, the PS2 was also an era where uh, we got some really good retro compilations yeah um so i i just wanted to pay a bit of lip service to this so, so i mean the, the games in question are not ps2 games as such but the collections are and sort of some of my all-time favorite compilations of retro games can be found on the ps2 and in some cases on xbox and um gamecube as well yeah, but like I, this is a concept just kind of was born on the ps2 yeah exactly so so there were the odd sort of uh there were like the sort of the namco museum collections and the odd atari collection on ps1 but ps2 the amount of space they had on the disc sort of really lent itself to this sort of uh this sort of museum style approach where they would collect sort of a significant number of games in one package provide you with some additional material maybe some sort of original manuals or in some cases some video interviews and that sort of thing and provide you with what felt like a real genuine celebration of these games rather than just a just a flat re-release so 
Specific examples I'm thinking of are the there's the three Midway Arcade Treasures bundles, which yeah. are excellent. So they include a bunch of the old Atari game stuff, uh, along with some of the some of Midway's racing games and some of their beat 'em ups and things like Mortal Kombat and that sort of thing. So they, those three packs have got some great stuff between them and some absolute dog shit as well. But <laughs> with uh, with compilations like that, you always uh, you always kind of roll the dice a bit. Um, and there's there's value in exploring some of the dog shit as well on um, sure. occasion. Just uh, maybe only once, though. <laughs> <laughs> One friend. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, then, of course, there is the there is the Activision anthology, which I believe is the last time um, the Activision twenty six hundred games had some sort of re release. Um, so a, a lot of people who are into the Evercade now are really hungry to see these games on Evercade. But I think the ps2 and maybe the psp version of this activision anthology was the last time we saw a lot of stuff like river raid and um keystone capers and pressure cooker and all that sort of thing these are all games that are still great sort of the very best that the 2600 had to offer um and the activision anthology was great because it sort of uh, combined all this with some sort of virtual versions of the patches that you used to be able to send off for with the original 2600 versions and some cool. behind the scenes stuff and some different graphics modes you can play in and uh an incredibly cheesy 80s soundtrack as well <laughs> always always <laughs> so welcome like, so like it had it yeah it, it had like this weird selection of um licensed 80s music you could play in the background so you could play river raid while listening to tainted love and that sort of thing um uh, and then, of course, my, my favorite recent discovery uh, is Taito Legends, the yes, two Taito Legends packs. Those are great packs. These are fantastic. Uh, and I specifically, we've talked about this before, but I specifically didn't pick these up back in the day because I hadn't heard a lot of a lot of the games on them. Yeah. Um, but I picked them up recently specifically because I hadn't <laughs> heard of a lot of the games yeah. on them. <laughs> different, different world, different mentality. Yeah, exactly. Um so th- these these are two discs that are absolutely full of wonderful games from right from the beginning of Taito up until sort of a little bit more recent stuff and there there are some amazing games amongst those and Taito Legends and Taito Legends Taito Legends 2 I think is my favorite. Yeah. They get a lot of time in my PS2 today. Just 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 regularly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great collection. I mean, it has most of like the late the late game um Darius games on it. It has a bunch of Space Invaders iterations on it. Yep. It just stuff like Rodland and Don Doko Don and it's just got Elevator Action Returns. Oh god, that's yeah. a great game. <laughs> yeah, there's just so many of these compilations. Like I have the Capcom Arcade Classics. Uh-huh. Which is like, you know, we love the the Belt Scroll, the Capcom Belt Scroll or Beat 'em Up bundle or whatever from like a year or two ago on the PS4 and the switch but like a lot of those games were on the capcom arcade classics uh, on the ps2 like yep. uh, king of dragons knights of the round like uh, final fight like they were all available on there um it's one of the only it's the only way i know of to own three wonders physically in your home and okay i, I am obs- it's just a game i've been obsessed with ever since i was a kid um, <laughs> capcom's three wonders incredible stuff um yeah, I mean, I have a Neo Geo one, which, you know, allowed me to own Magician Lord in a time before I ever thought I could afford a Neo Geo. I have... Yep. Yeah, uh, and uh, the 
SNK specifically was really big on porting some of their classics to the PS2. So I'm thinking about like the, the there were two Fatal Fury archives collections. All yep. the there was a the Metal Slug anthology. There was a uh, a Samurai Showdown anthology at the time. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we haven't even. I mean, I know you're not a big fighting game guy, but we haven't even touched like the fighting game scene on the PS2. Marvel, yep. Capcom versus SNK2 is <laughs> like <laughs> like life altering stuff. Uh, just you know, the virtual fight, the the virtual fighter, virtual fighter three on the PS2 was massive. Like, yeah, Tekken on the PS2 was. A whole thing the, the 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 final bloody roar games on the PS2 generation. It's a franchise nobody ever talks about these days. But I love them. Soul mm -hmm. Calibur three. Yep. With the RPG mode and the character builder, infinite hours with my, <laughs> with my friends and I. Just yeah, yeah. On and on and on, on and on and on. I could go about the PS2 era, but also I'm tired. <laughs> well, I think we've sort of uh, made our made our love for it pretty pretty apparent. Certainly, there's uh, a lot more we could talk about, and I'm sure this is one of one of those many topics we will probably come back to at some point, maybe with a sort of tighter focus on a particular type of game. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, I'd yeah, love the, to do an RPGs episode, just like a PS2 era RPGs episode. Yeah, exactly. But there's there's so much to talk about from this era, and I think just what we've talked about today is pretty pretty sort of good evidence for 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 why i mean i won't speak for you but certainly the ps2 i think is is still my favorite console i think it's it's still my favorite console of of all time i mean i know you've got experience with with certain consoles that i don't have and so your your, your view on that might be might be slightly well, different but as, as far as i'm concerned ps ps2 is is sort of my all-time favorite if you it depends what mood you catch me in right yeah so like if I feel like being a hipster gaming asshole, I'll be like, "Yeah, it's the Neo Geo," <laughs> and people will be like, "What's that?" But like, if I'm if I'm actually being realistic and talking about things that people understand, <laughs> then yeah, ab absolutely, the PS2 is my favorite console. It's got FF10, it's got FF12, it's got Disgaea One, Two, it's got it's got Persona Three and Four, Shin Megami Tensei Nocturne, Artonelico One and Two. Uh, Freaking Ape Escape 2 and 3. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. God of War 1 and 2. Castlevania Curse of Darkness. Chulip. <laughs> like, yeah. like, dark, like, like, we mentioned Dark Cloud. Dark Cloud can't be stressed enough. Like, uh -huh. yeah. just, yeah, there's there's no doubt that PS2 is, is quite possibly the finest console ever created. Mm -hmm. From a standpoint of experiences, accessibility, availability, um, Certainly not durability, but that's a that's a different <laughs> that's a that's a different discussion to be had. Um, well, well, I, I say that. I mean, the PS2 Fat I'm using, I've probably had it for at least 15 years at this point, and it's still doing fine. The I PS2 still... Slims, PS2 Slims, I don't trust anymore after they scratched up my Artanelica 2 disc. Did they but really? The, the, yeah, but the 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 Fats have done me proud over the years. Yeah. So if you're going to get PS2, get a fat one. <laughs> I have a. I still have my original. All beefed up with the hard drive expansion, the network adapter. <laughs> oh, nice! All the things that you probably never used. Yes, <laughs> I bought the. I, I bought the. I bought the network adapter for one thing and one thing only: Monster Hunter. <laughs> Excellent. Got a keyboard, <laughs> USB <laughs> keyboard. I uh, 
Those were the days. Online wasn't a given. It was a special thing you had to buy an adapter for. Yep. Yep. Right, I think that's probably a good place as any to uh, to hold off that discussion. So, like we say, we'll almost certainly return to some more specific PS2 stuff at some point in the future, but that is a nice general celebration of the platform for its 20th anniversary this year in 2020. So, yeah, big love to the PS2. Happy All right, uh, as usual, would you like to tell people where to find you online? Absolutely. You can always check out my artwork at ccaskyart.com where I post pieces for sale. I've also got a gallery available for viewing at uh, DeviantArt where my screen name is Mr. Gilder, M-R-G-I-L-D-E-R. Good stuff. And you can find my writing most days on moegamer.net and you can find videos at youtube.com slash Pete Davison. Uh, if you're listening to the audio version of this podcast, there's a video version on that YouTube channel that has footage of uh, most of the games that we've talked about today, or the ones I could find footage of anyway. Um, and it's also plays host to several of my ongoing series. So there's the Atari A to Z series, which explores Atari 8-bit, ST, and 2600, 5200, and arcade games. Uh, the Evercade A to Z series, which is going through uh, each of the games available on the Evercade cartridges for that platform. Uh, and also Short Play, which is just whatever I feel like playing that week. So, yeah. So, lots of stuff for you to explore. Uh, it just remains for us to say, as always, thank you very much for watching and or listening, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can watch a video version of it over on YouTube. Be sure to check out moegamer.net for new articles on Japanese and Japanese-inspired video games, new and old, every weekday. Every month, Moegamer features an in-depth exploration of an individual game or series as its cover game, so be sure to check the archives to see if your favourite has had a deep dive yet. If you'd like to support the site directly, please consider becoming a patron or buying me a coffee. You can find links to do both over on moegamer.net. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.